Welcome, everybody. This is Richard Sachs. I'm your host on Lost Arts Radio. Thanks for coming back and sharing some time with us. This is our show for Worldwide Broadcast on the 10th day of June 2018. And uh, we're very fortunate for the guest we have with us tonight. It's going to be a a super interesting session. And the way that I decided to try to invite him and see if he could come on relatively short notice was the events in the U.K., of this past, well, the past week here at the time we're recording this is that uh, we had the arrest of an ally of all of ours named uh, Tommy Robinson in the UK. And he's been a reporter uh, first in his own village and then in in places all around the UK and other parts of Europe um, where there have been some really nasty activities uh, built around... uh, Islamic people that are uh, kidnapping kids and setting up uh, child trafficking and uh, sex grooming rings and all kinds of things that shouldn't be happening. Uh, Not that this is reflecting on the average Muslim person, many of whom are friends of mine who don't participate in this kind of thing, but the thing that came up is how it relates not to the opinion of average people in Islam, but to the scriptures of Islam itself. And This is uh, tied into the censorship activities that are really tightening now because when Tommy Robinson was arrested, he wasn't arrested for doing any um, really horrible crimes that we can tell. He was arrested because he mentioned on a microphone as a reporter that there was a trial going on in London for a large number of uh, men that were uh, indicted for sex trafficking. And it was supposed to be a secret trial that nobody knew about because it was all being conducted under uh, uh, Islamic uh, procedures that they were following. And this was in line with with certain religious uh, um, things that are talked about in the scriptures of Islam, which I've, thanks to Dr. Warner, I've read. And um, nobody was supposed to find out. So Tommy was just standing outside mentioning that this trial was going on and they came out and uh, the judge looked at him through the window from the trial room and a bunch of the people supposedly being tried were making signs like uh, your head's being cut off and the police came out and arrested him and within one hour had convicted him and put him in prison where he still is now at the time of this recording. So we wanted to put this in context and see if Dr. Warner would help us with that a little bit talking about uh, censorship and how this all ties together with current events in the UK and different parts of of Europe. And fortunately for us, he said okay, in spite of a busy schedule, and he's here now. And uh, I really appreciate that very much. So thanks for being here, Dr. Warner. Well, I'm glad to do it, Richard. You're one of my favorite interviewers. For those who've ever been interviewed, there are people who are better at this job than others. Let me just assure you of that. <laughs> well, thank you. That's really nice to hear. This one is probably good because I don't know how to do it, and it's just spontaneous. And we're we're just talking as regular old people, and it reminds we'll, we'll, me. We'll make up the facts as we go. <laughs> well, there's probably some that we can we can discover, but I, it reminds me of the fact that I used to be really afraid of uh, public speaking when I was a kid in school, and it would make me so nervous. I would feel like I was sick, you know, and. I finally, when I was much older, figured out the only way that I could possibly do it, since I was going to have to be talking to large groups of people, 
uh, in person or on the air was to just, in my mind, give up public speaking forever. And even if I had to talk to a crowd of a million people, it would just be like one-on-one, spontaneous, casual, and I would never again do public speaking, no matter how many were in the audience. And ever since I told my mind I'd quit that, now I'm fine. And it's the same with radio. I don't try to be a radio personality either, and that makes it go great. So um, now I want to tell everybody, Dr. Warner is, uh, if in case you don't know, has been on Lost Arts Radio quite a few times, and you should listen to the previous recordings on YouTube, where they're amazingly still up, and also on Blog Talk Radio, because it makes a series, an educational series, um, not about what Muslim people are doing, but what the scriptures of Islam say, and what Muhammad was doing, and his uh, teachings about the, the will of Allah and how it's to be carried out. I think it's a really important education that, that's missing in the public domain for the most part. And uh, Dr. Warner is a scientist who took it on himself to m- try to organize the three major scriptures of Islam in a way that was coherent and fit into a, a progressive time frame that wasn't jumping all over the place. And refer directly to the original scripture so it's not his opinion or the opinion of imams or academic experts or anything it's just making scriptures accessible so that everybody should read them or could read them and understand and I think actually this is something that uh, I I agree with, with the authorities in a funny way and I think that that's that kids and everybody who's older should be taught lessons in Islamic studies just correct according to what's really written and so today we're going to kind of relate that to current events and uh, where do you think is a good starting point based on the the event that I mentioned Dr. Warner well first off let me say that I think one of the most valuable rights that a person has is the right to speak his mind Mm -hmm. Uh, without that you have a nation of lies and tyranny. I don't see any, if, if we're not allowed to speak the truth, then it, it, we're living in, a, living in a world of evil, so far as I'm concerned, because I think the greatest respect we can pay someone else is to just be able to listen to them. And if you don't agree with them, okay, fine. Look, I don't agree with a lot of people I hear, but I don't want to go out and shut them up, either by law or force. I figure everybody's got their own opinions, and let's listen to them. But we live in a world today, of course, in which if you don't have the right opinions, then you're considered to be a civil criminal. Mm-hmm. And this is, I mean, how does it, if you can't speak your own mind, how are we any different from East Germany laboring under the Stasi secret police? And not That's just not just everybody. speaking your mind, but being able to listen to people who speak their mind or write books or things. Mm-hmm. And I, it's partly uh, with your encouragement that I went ahead and got a copy of Mein Kampf and of the Communist Manifesto and uh, teachings of Mao Zedong and people like that. I want to know what they all actually say, not just somebody saying they're terrible and and you don't know the details. No, no, no. I mean, I think uh, it's a wonderful thing to hear people in their own voice. And to that degree, that's what I try to do with Islam. I try to speak with the voice of Muhammad and Allah. Mm-hmm. Because I've listened carefully, listened, I mean, actually I've read carefully what is written of their words. And I base everything on what they said. And yet we've reached the point here in America in which, let me just switch to America from uh, what I now call Soviet Britain. Yeah. 
And here in Nashville, Tennessee, there was a meeting of the SPLC, the Southern Poverty Law Center, uh, and uh, they spoke at the Jewish Federation. And, of course, they love to speak about their favorite thing, which is hate. Right. And so what they say is that haters should not be given any forum. Well, I say if they're a serious hater, we listen to them in the forum, we'll discover enough who they are. And quite frankly, I don't need the Federation or the SPLC or you or anybody else telling me what they said. I'll read it for myself. I don't need you to hold my hand or hold my brain while I read. So I'm a radical free speecher. Isn't it interesting how carefully names and terms are chosen and assigned in order to give a certain impression? Because if you hear Southern Poverty Law Center, anybody who doesn't know better would think, these are poor people in the South that they're trying to defend against the evil tyrants and things, and yeah. we should just give them all of our money. It sounds right. like a great, great organization. And uh, by the way, they have room for more money because I think their bank account now is only a third of a billion dollars, so they've got room for oh, more sure. money. Is, is that the overseas one or the in, in the country? Well, you know, I actually don't know. I can't, but I, I know that at one time I saw somewhere that their net worth was a third of a billion dollars and climbing. Yeah. Now, how much of that is here or overseas, I don't know. But they don't seem to spend their money on anything except piling up more money. Mm-hmm. Now, these yeah. are very pious people, by the way, the Southern Poverty Law Center, because they know the truth. And it turns out they alone know the truth because their criteria for who's on this hate list, and I'm on that hate list, I read the criteria for being on the list, I do not meet a single criteria, not one, but that doesn't make any difference. By imperial decree, there's no Russian word, ukaz, which is the decree of the czar. So by decree of the Southern Poverty Law Center, I'm a racist, hater, bigot, Islamophobe, and by the way, that's all one word. Right, right. It's, it's, it's one of the re- really impressive technical terms, and I, I think to be fair, they're pro- the SPLC is probably using... Um, high-level friends, you know, like the people who run Snopes and other ones like that, to make sure that they're correct. You know, I don't need Snopes either. Look, <laughs> just give me what you said, and I'll go research it myself. I don't need somebody to hold my hand. Right. And yet, we have a lot of people now. And by the way, the, the Jewish Federation, and I know many of the people in the Federation. Mm-hmm. I'm not talking about strangers. And the SPLC, of whom I know no one. They insist that, no, I'm not capable of making a moral judgment or I wouldn't be on the list anyway. So, and oh, by the way, let me say that I'm one of the original members of the list, too. I have a certain amount of seniority when it comes to racist, hater, bigot, Islamophobe. Wow. I actually sat down and I made a short list. There are several people here in Middle Tennessee who are on that list. One of them is a retired Vanderbilt professor who ran for mayor and finished second. She's on the hate list. Now, think about what I just told you, a retired university professor a conservative woman who finished second in the mayor's race. She qualifies for one of the worst haters in America. Then we have another woman who's older than I am, and I'm 77, and she's the oldest lobbyist at the Tennessee legislature. You would think in her over 35 years of being a lobbyist, somebody would have realized, oh, she's a hater. No one ever knew that she was a hater until the Southern Poverty Law Center told us so. Then I had a woman who at my house, a wonderful woman, Annie Cyrus, who escaped from Iran, where she was a child bride, raped, beaten. And she's on the Southern Poverty Law Center's hate list because she's talked about the Sharia, which allowed her to be raped, hated, and beaten. Mm-hmm. And so because of that, she's on the hate list. Yeah, we, we got to experience that up close firsthand because she's been a guest on the show. And uh, I love Annie Cyrus. 
Incredible person. She's amazing. She's brave. And one of the things she, she has to do to be a brave person is not only to stand against the Sharia and stand against Muslims who might assassinate her, but she also has to stand against something like the Southern Poverty Law Center mm-hmm. because they've said she is an immoral person. She is not. She's a wonderful person as a hero. Right, right. So, so you started to talk about what happened to Tommy Robinson and why that's important. And um, I think you were relating it to things that were going on in this country as well as the UK as well, right? This is true. There is a great fear. Although, look, let's make a distinction here. The United States is not near the level of repression and tyranny that Great Britain is or some of the other countries in Europe. So I want to make a distinction here. We, are on the, we have our foot on the same path. That's what the Southern Poverty Law Center is saying, is that we mm-hmm. will determine in America who is the moral character and who, who is allowed to speak. But in Britain, uh, I just came back from a 12-day tour of U- Europe. It was about right. two months ago, two weeks ago. Okay. And one of the anxieties about the group, I have a group of about 100 people who study with me and, and try to influence politicians in Europe, which we're mm-hmm. beginning to do. But one of the anxieties was when we went to London, when we flew from Germany to London was, would I be allowed to enter Europe, enter the uh, Great Britain? Mm -hmm. And it turns out that I was, which was a great relief to them. But on the other hand, there are many people such as Pam Geller and Robert Spencer and what's the lady Southern or what's her from Canada? Lauren Southern. Lauren Southern have been barred from entering. So there was a question, would I even be able to enter UK. And it turns out that I was. Mm-hmm. But think about this. There was an anxiety about whether I would enter, be able to enter a country. And I am a man to be feared. I'm, I weigh 160 pounds. I'm five foot 10 and 77 years old. So I'm a real tyrant on the streets, let me tell you. I think you're the only person I've ever met who's an expert in every martial art. So, <laughs> so I'm a dangerous man on the street. Yeah. I mean, the thought Sometimes it's amusing to me that I receive such vilification. It's like, really? You think that much of me? But, uh, so it's, it's a mark of honor to be in, in the, what is it? There's a wonderful phrase which is not coming to my mind about speaking the truth when it is forbidden as an act of courage. Oh, yeah, George Orwell. Right. George Orwell, who, by the way, seems like a real prophet these days. Yeah, isn't it weird that suddenly we're decades past 1984, and it's actually all, we've gone beyond that now. But how many times do you hear references to 1984? Uh, not too often. I mean, on Alex Jones's show a lot, but um, which is where I first saw you, by the way. Oh, really? But, yeah, <laughs> but, but not too many other places, it's true. But anyway, I think we're in a, I, I see freedom of speech as almost a spiritual, not almost, as a spiritual right. By the way, we have another right which is being violated here. I think as a human being, we have the right to be left alone, which is not a popular theory with authoritarians and totalitarians. No, that would take away all the business of government if that was happening. (laughs) But it's a a really delicate thing with with this concept of religion, because religion, to me, is something by definition that you're not allowed to question. And it's what science has become now, for example. You're just supposed to refer to acceptable information sources. Uh-huh. Right. And, and the, the tricky part is if you memorize and, and just obey a religion that's telling you to do good things, then 
it's really not much of a problem, but there's always a danger because you're obeying it because you can't question it. And so when any belief system, whether it's the belief that vaccines are really great for you or that you have to kill people for God, when it starts telling you to do things that are atrocities, um, it's pretty dangerous because people all figure that if they don't obey, they're going to go to hell or not get into heaven. Well, you know, it's interesting. I sort of, there are different religions. Hinduism, for instance, and Buddhism don't have the concept of there's only one way to view the truth. Right. And I think that's, that's the problem. And, uh, but you are right. Look, any form of authoritarianism has to be questioned. Now, of course, if we can get off of we're discussing philosophy as a sophomore, so we can all say, well, what about parents? Should they be able to allow to, to uh, demand their kids follow this or that? And I would have to say as a parent, yes, you do have that right. Yeah. After you leave the house, think what, say whatever you want. Right. Well, one of the problems with, with questioning that is that if the kids don't follow the parents, they're going to follow somebody. And Ooh, what, what, government, what government says is, well, it should be us, not the parents. Parents are fallible and government isn't. But I think it's set up better to be done with the parents. And then, you know, you just have to help the parents be as good as possible. But in the case of, uh, you mentioned Buddhism and Hinduism, I look through a lot of different religions to see, you know, how much they fit this, this pattern, at least at certain times in history, of ordering people to do horrific things in order to make God happy. And I thought, well, Hindu, I mean, Buddhism probably never did anything like that. And I found one village in Africa where the Buddhists were killing all the Sikhs because they thought they were so evil. So they even got into the club, but just barely. It's very rare for Buddhists. Well, there is, by the way, Buddhists are cured of being accused of being terrorists and fighting against the Rohingya in what, what's the new, Myanmar, which is what we used to call Burma. Yeah. And most of those stories, which I've researched, just turn out not to be true. Okay, that makes sense. Now, the Buddhists are, have been gone to war against the Rohingya because they've been killed. Mm-hmm. So it's it's it's... Now we can drift off into the concept of just war. But anyway, by and large, I don't want to be told by anybody what I can or cannot say, particularly about political issues. Let's move from religion to political issues. Right. If I want to vote for somebody who's in the John Birch Society, which I haven't thought about doing for decades, but if I did, so Mm -hmm. what? We can talk about it. And that's what I love about is that we should be able to talk about anything, but we're beginning to increasingly live in a world in which the wrong joke can get you fired. The human resource department has become totalitarian in many, in many organizations. And I can remember when, you know, we used to have something called a sense of humor. You may I've remember heard of that. It. Right. And actually, as I think about it, when I grew up as a child, I grew up in an Appalachian society. And one of the things that marked you as a man was there were two things you could do. One, you could work a day's work in the field. It was important. Mm-hmm. And the other was you could take a joke. Hmm. If you're on the store porch with the other men and they made some joke about you, you better be able to laugh about it or else you were going to get poked again. Mm-hmm. And so as a consequence, you learn not only to laugh at your remarks about yourself, but you would even make deprecating remarks about yourself. And oddly enough, the mark of a true friend was you could insult him and he, we, we would both laugh. Right, 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 right. That is, no, that is like that. humor measures real tolerance. And so I think if we want, as the, quote, tolerance movement has gotten bigger and bigger, the humor has gotten smaller and smaller because tolerance means is that nothing can be tolerated that irritates 
protected minority groups. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And isn't it interesting um, that you mentioned the two areas of religion and politics, and it looks like when religious authority has gotten dangerous and made people do really bad things has been when those two areas merged. Yep. You know, you look at times in the Old Testament when people were, you know, there, there was a lot of the same behavior that Islam now talks about being promulgated, like killing homosexuals and people who didn't have the right religion and apostates and things like that. That's when the Hebrews were following a religion that included everything they did politically, including invasions and things. And right. that's kind of what's going on now with Islam, right? It is indeed. Of course, it's when you say it's going on, it's been, well, we can't say that. Islam has been in existence for 1,400 years, and for the first period of Muhammad's life, after he became the messenger of Allah, uh, there was no violence. That is, in the, the Quran is divided into two parts, the early part in Mecca, the latter part in Medina. 24% of the Quran written in Medina is about jihad, but there is no jihad in the Quran of Mecca. So for the first 13 years of his life, he had debates and arguments, which, by the way, I'm all for. I love debate. And arguments, I don't mind arguments until the blood pressure gets too high. But anyway, it's, uh, he was a tolerant man. But when he went to Medina, he became very intolerant. And that's when the Quran totally changes it in from being a religious document to a political document. Well, and that was the first time also when if you wanted to have the best chances of getting into paradise, it included things that you had to do to other people. Yep. That's indeed true. And, of course, the worst of them was is you could capture them, you could enslave them, you could kill them. If you did it under the right banner, which is the banner of jihad, by the way, as you know, I love numbers and statistics. Mm -hmm. Muhammad was involved, according to his biography, in 95 acts of jihad in the last nine years of his life. Very busy man. By the way, this tells us one other thing. If you do that, Muhammad was not an extremist. He, he defines the moral norm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, in fact, he's the, the model of a perfect human being, I think, right? Exactly. He is the... There are 89 verses, I used to say 91, but after some consideration, I decided maybe only 89 verses in the Quran says that the messenger is the perfect model to be a human being. That if you, it actually it says this in two ways. It says you'll go to hell if you don't do it like Muhammad, and it says you'll go to heaven if you do it like Muhammad. Yeah. With a minor footnote, which is puzzling, there's also parts of the Hadith which say that your fate is determined at birth. So Islam ranges between freedom of freedom of will, which would give you the allowance, I guess, give you the allowance to say your mind, and the other one is is that no, it's already predetermined. Right, right, and actually, it, they might both be true in reality because if you knew everything about a person's predispositions, maybe you could predict all of their free will choices, but they'd still be experienced as free will at the time. Ah, uh, possibly, possibly. But the only thing is, I don't want you, whatever your background of philosophy is telling me, Bill, shut up your face. Uh, no, that's a whole different issue. So, and the other thing you mentioned that he was involved in 95 acts of jihad. Some people have come to think of jihad as primarily just trying to be a better person and stuff like that. I don't think you're referring to that kind of jihad, right? Well, we can include it. The one form of jihad is speech, writing, money, and sword. 
Now, there is an inner struggle. Jihad just means struggle, by the way. Yeah. Uh, I always want to remind people that harb is the word for war. Jihad is just means effort. It means just that, work, if you will. Okay. And there is, of course, an interior jihad, which is the jihad of the struggle of making yourself a better Muslim. Right. And uh, I, I counted up all the hadith in Bukhari that dealt with jihad. That was 21% of them, which means out of the 7,000, that's roughly 1,400 hadith about jihad. That's a lot of jihad. Which kind of, of jihad is? 2% right? deal with inner struggle. Okay, so the, the, what, you, what you just said was all the stuff on jihad. Which kind of jihad is that? Is that just trying to be a better person? Two per- out of all the jihad were, uh, hadith, which include jihad of money, sword, speech, and writing, okay? Mm-hmm. There's also the inner struggle, but it's only 2% of all the uh, references. That is, out of those 1,400 hadith, 2% of them refer in some way to religious struggle. So, yes, it does, but it is only a small part of jihad. So it's 2% inner struggle, 98% oppressing the Kafir, the non-Muslim. Okay, okay. And one of the ways they can be suppressed, by the way, is told, shut up, don't talk about this. Only, we're not allowed, you are not allowed to speak on this issue, which is what I'm told by not only Muslims, but now then we have the left of center politician, political types who say the same thing. We have two enemies on, the enemy, on free speech. We have the enemy of Islamic Sharia, that's one enemy, which I call the far enemy. Then we have the near enemy, which are people like the Southern Poverty Law Center, and anyone else who says, you know, you just can't say that. Well, why can't I say that? You don't have to like it, but why can't I say it? And of course, here we get into the thing about, well, you know, hate. we have a new concept I've coined called hate facts. Yeah. Wait a minute, what I said was true, ah, but it offends the wrong people. What are the wrong people? Well, they're protected minorities. Yeah. So therefore... What you said is factually true, but it's actually hate speech because a minority doesn't like it. So it's right. a matter of feelings and taste, not facts. Have you ever looked into where this whole phenomenon of designating things as hate speech comes from, where it started? You know, I, this has been in my lifetime. When I was a child, that was back when we were living in caves and eating dirt. It was so long ago. I remember when yeah. the Dead Sea got sick. Yeah. Back in those days... Uh, no one ever referred to hate speech. Now, there was hate speech around, and I've heard hate speech, but it was, it was not a formal term in law. But now then, I've known of people who got clipped on hate speech in Britain who, confu- who confusedly used the word sir instead of ma'am. It's called gender, gender crime. Oh, yeah, yeah. And so it's like, lighten up, everybody, lighten up. But maybe right. that's just a white male I, I mean, Well, I, I think it was used from the early times of the so- Soviet Union, for sure, right? Because, um, in fact, there were, there were two things they used then that I see now. One of them was uh, calling things, I don't know what the term was, but it was something equivalent to hate speech for which you could get uh, exiled to prison. And there was also the thing that, oh, well, you're mentally ill, so you have to be taken away for that. And I think, but, well, but look at the word Islamophobia. What does that say? You're mentally ill. You're phobic. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. That's a mental illness. So I'm told that, for instance, that I am, I am, I have, since I think these thoughts, I am mentally ill. Maybe right. they would like to give me some of the state's drugs in a state hospital, and I would be normal. Who knows? Yeah, apparently they have a vaccine that, that they're trying to get promoted for that as well. <laughs> But anyway, our near enemy is the one that's harming us more than the far enemy, Richard. I've spent the first part of my career 
dealing with Sharia oppression, and now then I'm spending the latter part of my career dealing with leftist oppression or progressive oppression, to use the, if we can use those terms. How is that coming up? How are you experiencing it? Well, I go back to the Southern Poverty Law Center and others who say, when I read my emails, it is rare for people who criticize me to address any facts in terms of like, oh, that this is you got this wrong. Mm-hmm. Instead, what they say to me is I'm a bad person. Let me give you an example. I live in Nashville, Tennessee, and Vanderbilt University is here where I attended for undergraduate degree. I gave a talk at Vanderbilt at the invitation of a student group called Youth for Western Civilization, an obvious racist group. Yeah, yeah, sounds like all, ha- all haters, probably. All haters. Well, right. it turns out, <laughs> you, you must have read the end of the story. When I got through with my lecture, which was just a statistical analysis, it was called Statistical Islam. And I've already given you some of these statistics, which I use. And when the talk was over, a man stood up in the back of the room and started screaming at me. He didn't ask me a question. He started screaming at me. He said, you should never be allowed on any campus. You're a racist. What is the implied racial symbolism of that sign behind you? And I looked around and it said, Youth for Western Civilization. You yeah. see it was black letters on white final backing. And some of oh, black, yeah. well, that gives black away white right was right obvious right. racial symbology. Yeah. I'm looking at this guy like he's coming unglued. And he just kept, then he started repeating himself. And so I waited long enough until finally he stopped. The man turned out to be the head of the Middle East Department. Oh, amazing. Now then, his method of dealing with my 45 minutes worth of statistical analysis and what I thought was intriguing statistical analysis because what it shows, for instance, things like ethical dualism, he did not address a single fact that I did in 45 minutes. Instead, he started screaming that I was a racist he didn't use the word Islamophobe because that predated that. Yeah. So yeah. this is the head of the Middle Eastern Department. By the way, it is not on, it's gotten worse at the college campuses now, which breaks my heart because, you see, I think that part of the beauty of becoming educated is you learn critical thought, scientific thought. Mm-hmm. And yet the universities no longer even attempt to teach that, not in the social sciences or the liberal arts. Instead, they teach ideology in which you now know the right ideology because we're the authorities and we've told you, and if you don't believe this, then you're a racist, hater, bigot, Islamophobe. Let me attach one more thing to the little story. There was a woman who, well, she was a a young adult in the crowd at the time whose parents were big fans of mine, and so they brought her along because she was a student at Vanderbilt. When When I got through with the talk, the man who was screaming at me in the back of the room with a department head, she went up to him and said, I have a question for you. I took Judaism 101, and you as head of the Middle East Department came to our class and told us for an hour's time how wonderful the Jews were treated by Islam and how we had a special place and we were protected and everything. And she says, this man tells another story. And the guy says, well, these right-wing conservatives, she says, I don't want to hear about right-wing. I don't want to hear about left-wing. I want to hear about Muhammad and the Jews. He turned on his his heel and strode off. And in that moment, she went from having a slight suspicion that I was politically incorrect and probably therefore perhaps a bigot. Mm-hmm. Her whole reality changed in that split second. It was like, he lied to me. The head of the department lied to me. And Bill, my parents' friends, is telling me the truth. Yeah. So she was taught a direct lie by the head of the department at a fine university. But you see, here's the problem. It may be a lie, but it's the ideological truth from Vanderbilt, and it's not allowed to be questioned by anyone such as myself who comes in from the outside because debate is no longer part of Vanderbilt. 
Instead, right. it is, here are the facts, learn them, and spit them back to us on a test. It's become the religion of academia. Not, not just Islam, but in whatever subject they're oh, talking about. Oh, yeah, it's not, no, it, uh, you're right. It, it fits to many subjects. I mean, the woman who, oh, the woman who's on the Southern Poverty Law Center, hate list, was a tenured professor at Vanderbilt, and she, in a senior seminar, says, this is politically incorrect, but she said something about what I don't know. Mm-hmm. That was what got her on the hate list, doing a senior seminar and, and explaining to the students, these are my points of view. She didn't say this is the truth. Mm-hmm. Here's, well, here's how I view it. Well, that was reported, and it went all the way. This story gets weirder and weirder. went all the way to the president of the university who declared in public that he would fire her if she were not tendered, and then he established a 1-800, I'm not making this up, a 1-800 hotline for those students who had been traumatized by hearing mm-hmm. her say this. Yeah. It, it's Seniors almost impossible you're traumatized by hearing a point of view you don't agree with? Good Lord. Yeah, yeah. I've heard many instances of that all across the country at different universities. And in some of them, they're putting in rooms where the students can go and they have uh, crayons and Play-Doh and blankets and stuff and try to feel comforted to recover from the trauma. You see, I was taught, remember as a child, that you need to be tough and not be break down and fall to your knees crying and if you hear an opinion you don't like. This goes back to the thing about you better learn how to laugh at yourself when someone makes a remark about you on the store porch because it's part of the culture. And mm-hmm. then part of the culture is no one gets a chance to be offended. Richard, I get offended many times every day reading the news before I finish my cup of coffee. <laughs> How come out I'm not on that list about reality cannot offend me? How do you get on that list? So, so what do you think is going on with these professors like the one that you described that intentionally, are, they're very in, intelligent people as far as just basic IQ is concerned, yep. and, they're, and they're saying things that they know are all based on untruth what's going on with that i really don't know it is actually inexplicable to me i thought that i grew up in a civilization which honored debate honored you know rational process Mm -hmm. and now then more and more it's like it's not that you're wrong it's you have a personality disorder i mean when i yeah yeah it's it's I don't know exactly how we got here, but I do know this. Let's go back to the Federation and the Southern Poverty Law Center. Mm-hmm. At this talk, which I did not go to, what they established was their moral superiority. And what they established to people like me and this Vanderbilt professor is how we are inferior morally. That is, the racist, hater, bigger, Islamophobe. None of those things are factually true. It's just that they say you're an immoral person. You're a bigot. You're a racist. You're a hater. And... There, I've learned this. If somebody calls you a racist, hater, bigot, Islamophobe, there's no sense wrestling with that tar baby. Just, I don't address it at all. Yeah, 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 yeah. I don't get down in the mud and wrestle with them. It, it, but it, it is kind of mysterious, like you say, why uh, in, some really otherwise intelligent people can get into that mentality and completely just act com- completely crazy for years and years and... It, it makes you wonder if there's some subtle kind of programming that's going on. It's like there's almost something that's like there's something in civilization's water or something that's created uh-huh. some sort of brain disease. 
Yeah. And I'm, I'm, I'm trying to be funny about this, but at the same time, I think it's one of the most serious issues facing our nation, not just nation, civilization. Because yeah. we find the same disease in Australia, we find it in Europe. Uh, well, I think it's a pretty important issue, like you say, and we, we've we had a guest on, a uh, famous uh, guy that used to debrief the communist Soviet uh, spies that were caught in World War II. His name is Barry Troer, and he's an expert in microwave weapons. And he said that at that time, prior to World War II, they, the frequencies could easily be tuned to change the thoughts and emotions of the uh, targeted victims to be to go crazy or commit crimes or murders or whatever they wanted, and that was uh, quite a few years ago now. And, and we've got uh, EMF transmissions going on in countries all over the world right now, and the, how they're programmed uh, is not in the newspaper. Well, whether it's uh, vicious attempts uh, attacks like that, which I'll just label that as a vicious attack. Yeah, we seem to have reached the point where, time and time again, oh, let me tell you another story that happened at Vanderbilt University, which deals with this same issue because it deals with facts and feelings. There's a man lived in town who is he doesn't live anymore. He was a uh, Sikh, and he was an expert on Gandhi. Mm-hmm. He was the man who created, there has been a big intellectual revision about studying Gandhi, and it turns out that all those things you saw about Gandhi, which you loved in the movie, they're not true. And he dealt with this. He said, Bill, come along. We're going to have fun. This is a graduate seminar, and we're going to see how much we can stir their brains with facts. Mm-hmm. He started off by saying, everything I'm going to tell you today is a quote from a prime source. It's not my opinion. And I'm going to show you, it was a slideshow, I'm going to show you where I got the information. This comes from this date, this time, this newspaper. When it was all done, you could see the students' brains just exploding because he's, <laughs> look, Gandhi is, is for, for leftists, superior to Jesus or Moses, okay? Because he's the perfect, he's the modern saint. Yeah. A very attractive Vanderbilt girl raised her hand. She says, well, Dr. Singh, she says, I've listened to what you've said about Gandhi, but I like my Gandhi better. Yeah, exactly. It's like, whoa, 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 whoa. He just explained to you that everything in your myth is just a creation of political branch of the Indian Hindu government. And now, even though I've explained this to you, you say, I don't like your Gandhi based on facts and truth. And I just about fell out of my chair. I was like, I don't believe what I'm watching here. She just said, I don't care what the truth of the matter is. I like my Gandhi better than your Gandhi. Well, at least she was honest about it. She didn't try well, to Well, there is that. <laughs> I never thought about it. There is that. What, you just came back from Europe. What do you know about what's going on in different countries over there right now? Because I know a lot of them are under great stress as far as hold, trying to hold their societies together. Actually, I'm going to give you some good news. I think that we could say that everything that has been said in this talk up to now has been some version of bad news. Uh I'm going to talk to you about good news. Okay. Uh, This is all work. I have about 80 to 100 students who work with me in Europe trying to affect politicians with fact-based learning. How about that for a concept? Okay. That must be shocking. And, And so I got to, when I was in Vienna, I got to meet with two groups of people. One was a group of intellectuals, and they had one parliamentarian with them, and they're getting ready to start a think tank addressing the problems of political Islam in Central Europe, which I, and they invited me to be a member of. I took that as a high compliment. Mm-hmm. Then 
I got to meet there are, in Europe now. There's a new kind of political party called Freedom Parties, and in Vienna and Vienna in Austria, the Freedom Party of Austria, the FPO, is the second largest uh, party in Austria. That is, this is no longer a minority party, and so. The, the head leader of the FPO told me that he was that they were going to start using my books and my students as to teach them the doctrine of Islam. Wow. So that I consider a great thing to happen. Yeah. Then I went to Germany where I spoke to two different groups, one in Stuttgart and the other in Berlin of FPO members, not FPO, AFD members, which are the alternative for Germany. And the same thing, it's the Freedom Party. Mm-hmm. And they're like, I think, 15 percent of the parliament. And I gave them a talk, and they also agreed that uh, I would be, my books would be used for them to learn Islam from. Oh, by the way, I got a, a sweet compliment from the man who introduced me. I spoke at the Bundestag, and he, he called, he said, Bill Warner is the Flash Gordon of Islamic critics, which I laughed at. <laughs> That's great. But anyway, what I'm saying here is, is that there are political parties which are now trying to base policy on facts that deal with Sharia and Islam. I consider this to be a wonderful turning point. Wow, that sounds super encouraging. So, it is. Yeah, there's a big division between the parties that are working like that and the ones that are actively trying to undermine the whole fabric of society any way they can. Yeah, but so, see, the reason they're underlining society is is our society is corrupt and their utopian view is the right one. As a matter of fact, it's the only one. See, that's where I get into these. That's where my problem with the left is, is that they have the only solution. Tell me your solution. Let's talk about it. Let's debate mm-hmm. about it. Let's reason about it. Well, I, I know a lot of times they come up in, in big groups in cities in America, and they're, they're not debating about anything. They're just screaming and making noise and trying to beat up people and stuff like that. You, are you referring to Antifa or Antifa? Antifa and their supporters who aren't official members, yeah. Yet, oddly enough, I've seen, I've not seen, participated, I've seen Antifa riot demonstrations where they're burning cars, smashing windows, and attacking people and knocking them to the ground with heavy steel objects. Their favorite is a bike lock, since it's not a yeah, weapon. Yeah, exactly. And they, that, they even like practice what? techniques. That's like, a, that's like a mace, right? Yes, it, it is a mace. And uh, shaped like a U. And even practice techniques in which you have big guys up front, they, they move laterally, the small guy comes from behind with a bike lock, he strikes the person, and mm-hmm. then they close back up so you can't get to him and he runs off. Yeah. Antifa or Antifa, I'm not sure which it is, is not a hate group according to the Southern Poverty Law Center. Well, they're saving the world from fascism from what, for one thing. So I think that could be the reason. You know, maybe I've just misnamed my, you know, maybe you've touched on something here. If I just call myself an anti-fascist and just publish the same books but put that as a subtitle, yeah. maybe they'd leave me alone. Yeah, they might like you. I don't know if there's uh, other requirements, but that would fulfill one of them for sure. Anyway, as, I, I guess, as, guess as long as you use their definition of fascist, though, you have to do that. You know, that's something else. The word Nazi, Hitler, and fascism are thrown around all the time. And mm-hmm. as I watch people doing this, I don't think they even know what the word Nazi means. Uh, no, they probably don't know the history at all, because history pretty much is not taught anymore. Well, of course, it, it stands, they were socialists, not conservatives. And right. Nazi, of course, is National Socialist Workers' Parties of Germany. Mm-hmm. National Socialist Workers' Party. I mean, Hitler was a socialist. He disagreed with the communist in that it was a world movement. He wanted socialism for Germany. Mm-hmm. 
So, but anyway. Well, yeah, but he was going to make Germany cover the whole world. That was another deal. Well, okay, look, I'm not trying to come on as pro-Hitler. I'm just saying, <laughs> I'm just saying I think people ought to know what that means. That's all I'm saying. Right, right, right. And no, by the so way, if you've read Mein Kampf, you, you've joined a very small club. That's, that's Everyone has heard the title, but I don't, I've never met anybody else besides myself who's read the book, actually read the book. Yeah, it's easily available, actually. Oh. I look on my desk, and mine is the one that I use to compute the figures that 7% of it was dealing with Jew hatred. I'm looking at it right now. Yeah. You just counted up the sentences in it and, and then uh, figured the percentage? Yeah. I was Actually, I did, since I did it by hand, I actually used paragraphs instead of sentences. It was made the oh. math easier. Oh, yeah. And so, I mean, you could... I just thought it was interesting that I actually measured the amount of Jew hatred in Mein Kampf, which I had never heard anybody else do. Um. No, no, they just think that it's Hitler. It's only about that subject. The vast majority of it is instead about the German people and how they were mistreated during the treaty for the Second World War and how it needs to, Germany needs to rise to power again. The part that's not about Jew hatred is standard political doctrine and just in terms of a man who wants to rise to power inside of a political system. And it's not particularly obnoxious or anything. It's like just standard political speech. Now, the Jew hatred part... I'm not trying to say a standard, but I'm just saying that the bulk of it is just another politician talking. Right. Well, so going back to what's going on in the UK, because you were talking about Austria and Central Europe, in in the UK there's some really unusual things going on because they're they know that these gangs running around uh, trafficking kids and uh, killing a lot of them after they're used for prostitution and stuff like that, the government people in the government that are supporting that know that that's completely destructive, but they're trying to hide it and protect it. Do you have an idea why that's going on? You know, if your society can't protect the weak, what sort of society do you have? If your society can't protect children and women, what sort of society do you have? Let's, it's going on in England. Let's take another version because England is, I mean, Europe is eaten up with this. In Germany, women are groped, raped, and they're headed by Merkel, who claims to be a woman, and yeah. yet she seems to have no feelings at all for the women who are in Germany. I am left with, like, I must say I don't have a really good idea as to why they don't do it, but somehow or other she has something that's more valuable in her brain than the German women, because mm -hmm. she's made a choice. I'm sure if you could pin her down, she'd say, well, of course, rape of German women is bad, but then you get to the butt part, of course, which negates everything you've set up to them. Why is it tolerated in Germany? And by the way, the bulk of this you do not hear about. That's, of course, that's what's happening is, is that the ruling people want to control the media, and they don't want the media talking about it. I mean, the thing with Tommy Robinson that made it burn so fast through the internet was the fact that the court said none of the press can talk about this. Right, right, right. Which, by the way, doesn't work in the modern world because everyone in England can, con can read the internet, and of course the internet was filled with, it was the buzz for 48 hours. The right, and after that they did give up finally, and now they're, they're saying, oh, well, we didn't mean that. You, everybody can report on it. It's fine. Oh, really? So they stepped aside from that? Yeah, they realized it wasn't 
having a very well it doesn't work anymore if ever look you can be in london and google drudge and there it is the headlines tommy robinson arrested sent to jail in prison yeah yeah so the the thing of what's going on with some of these um leaders that are obviously working against their own countries is really interesting because you mentioned merkel who i think has a really um unique uh history working for the was she a Stasi in East Germany? I don't. Remember. She did work with the Stasi, which was by most, even the KGB said it was the most effective secret police control of the citizens in the world. Yeah, and she she seems to have a good personality for that kind of work. Uh, but you know, she must. It must be that in Merkel's world, if we could follow around her, if we, if we could be the the fly, uh, we, if we could just follow around. I'll bet you the people she meets in her daily news, the people she talks to, never want to talk about the subject of the rape of German women. In their life, everything is good in the world they live in. Right. Uh, the elites don't live in our world, Richard. That's something you have to, I think we all have to realize, is, is that they don't live in our world. And so the facts which we find so horrifying, they don't find at all. And I don't think they even discuss about this. I bet yeah. you that Merkel has never sat in on a meeting on, on rape of German women. No, and, if, and and a lot of these leaders, um, their response is that it's the fault of the women. I, I think one of the great examples is that a lot of the leaders now in Scandinavia um, are definitely blaming the women for getting raped and, and just really um, glad that they don't have firearms available for anybody to defend themselves because that would really be terrible. I can remember when the, the, she was asking for it as a rape defense enraged feminist in America. I remember that. But mm -hmm. now then that she's not, she's wearing too short of shorts for to be raped in Germany. You know, what has happened to the feminist concept of women protecting women and universal rights for women that no one even seems to believe in that anymore? I, th I think the misuse of that term feminism is a lot like the Southern Poverty Law Center. You know, that it, it sounds really like something nice for women, and it's just the opposite. Because they, they don't seem to be concerned at all about what's going on with the women in the Scandinavian countries that are being massacred. Well, not massacred, but raped and beat up and uh, other bad things like that. And in fact, they, a lot of the government officials in Scandinavia have said, not only is it the fault of the women who are wearing the wrong kind of clothes and shouldn't be out at night and should never walk alone and things like that. But they finally did offer to give them some self-defense advice. And they said to tell the rapist to stay at arm's length. That should take care of it. You know, I wonder if I'm being mugged on the streets here in Nashville, if I can ever use that. Oh, stay at arm's length, sir. I think it would probably work, yeah. It's it's yeah. like it's like putting up a sign gun-free zone in your house to prevent it being uh, home invaders and stuff like that. <laughs> I never thought about that. Yeah, nobody thinks of it, and it's so easy. It costs almost nothing. You can just put one on every one of your doors. That there's no firearms allowed on the property. No firearms allowed. Leave your leave your gun outside. Right, and that's one of the, that's one of the interesting things about Gandhi that you were mentioning, is that he was very strong uh, proponent of firearms rights for individuals. Now that I did not know. Yeah. He, there are some famous quotes for, from him that say that's one of the things that you should never accept for your country is to lose the rights for firearms and self-defense. Well, I happen to agree with that. Yeah, I think they forgot to put that in the movie, though. 
<laughs> I remember seeing that. In the movie, you're just supposed to get beat up, and that's the end of it, and that saves everything. Well, I'm not real fond of getting beat up, which I think is the reason I have as many intellectual enemies as I have. Yeah, it could be. You're, you're still addicted to telling the truth as much as you can. I try. Uh, the, the other thing that I noticed in Scandinavia is that um, some of the government officials are saying that the uh, Muslims who believe in this violent form of jihad, and uh, including returning uh, jihad fighters in the Middle East, should be given not just housing and food, but education and should be brought into the schools. And I know that recently they were bringing some men in their 20s that were in that group into the high schools and say that if we're not uh, compassionate in giving them education, how do we expect anything to get better? You know, Richard, this may seem odd to you, but I've been, I am truly a compassionate person. But... If I'm standing in the middle of the tra train tracks and the train is bearing down on me, I don't depend on compassion to cause the engineer not to run over me. I step out of the side of the train. Right. So, I mean, there are th we can be compassionate, but that doesn't mean we need to be stupid it, at all. Yeah, I think it's, a, it's another part of that mystery we were discussing about how these guys are proposing measures like this seriously. Yeah. And, and they're otherwise intelligent. It's really, it's really strange. We, we once again, you and I are supposed to be giving our listeners answers here, and I'm afraid we keep stumbling ourselves and saying, how can this possibly be? Right. I don't have an explanation for that and um, in terms of rational explanation. Yeah, I, I don't think we can make anything up. I mean, it's just a mystery right now, and, and you can see instances of it all over the place. I mean, I think you've... You've seen enough of it in this country as well, right? Well, we had, you know, I was raised by two wonderful women, my mother and my grandmother. Mm -hmm. And there were times when they used reason to cause me to be a better child. There were rare occasions in which I was also given another kind of lesson, which was not a verbal lesson, but a spanking, in which case I need to shape up and do right because my actions were no longer tolerable in the house with the people living there. Mm -hmm. So there are times in which we need to use a stronger reason than just words. And we need to judge carefully when we do that. But nevertheless, I must say that some of the best lessons I've ever learned, the ones I won't forget, are the ones who were, were painful lessons. And now that we seem to be wondering in the fact that somehow or another, people should not be drawn up short on their fantasies about how politics should run. And yet we can have political ideas which have dreadful consequences, and we're being told in our nation now that we don't need to talk about those failures. Because if you, we talk about the failures, then we're bad people ourselves. How does that work? Yeah, that's very strange. I mean, that's just like the censorship acting in, in all different forms. And, and this idea of politicians protecting criminals of any type... Violent criminals, you know, not somebody who violated a zoning policy or something, but people who are murdering and raping and kidnapping and stuff like that. A lot of these otherwise normal-seeming, intelligent uh, political officials are protecting those people and, and helping them do more of the crimes. And an example of that, not, not necessarily connected to Islam, but the same kind of idea, is what's going on in California and places where they have – 
sanctuary cities, right, where it's officially okay to be a violent criminal and you don't have to uh, have any consequences for that. See, it's the business about consequences, no consequences that disturbs them because I think that violates reality. My experience in life is, is that if you do the wrong thing, reality will jerk you up real short and maybe cause you pain and suffering. Now, the beauty of the pain and suffering is, is you go, you know, I don't want to do that again because that doesn't work. And so how yeah. we balance between the rights of the individual and the rights of society I'm not, is a long discussion that needs to be ongoing and maybe a dynamic discussion. Mm-hmm. But nevertheless... Why can't we use reason and logic and not say, if, you, if I don't agree with your policies, that I'm a bad person? Because that's usually what happens is, if you mentioned immigration law, mm-hmm. if, there's, if you don't agree with immigration law, then you're a bad person. Well, wait a minute. Why are, why are the limits on the discussion only that you can tell me the truth? Why can't I talk as well? Right. And Being if, told if, you're if, a bad if person. If I say something you don't to... like, debate with me. Don't just call me a racist, hater, bigot, Islamophobe. Right. Well, calling you that means we're not going to discuss it. No, because now then I've shut you up because, see, you're a racist, hater, bigot, Islamophobe, and nothing you can say has any validity because you're a Hitler right. or some other. How come they're never a Mao or a Stalin? They're always Hitler. I never understood that. They figure that's one that people still remember. I mean, Mao really wasn't uh, talked about much in, in the education of this country that I remember. I mean, well, even, I don't think he was. I mean, even when I was going to school in the 50s and 60s, I, I, I don't remember being told anything about Mao Zedong. In fact, I, I remember sitting in an elementary school classroom uh, doing our assignments, and we were being indoctrinated with the mainstream news at that point in the in the early 50s. And Clancy Cassell came on CBS radio, KCBS, and was saying that there was a big crisis in uh, Formosa because Chiang Kai-shek was being chased over there by putting in Mao Zedong. He, f- he forgot to mention that the CIA is the one that put in Mao Zedong, but he did say, tell us about it. Mm-hmm. But the point is, if we want to discuss Mao, great, let's discuss who he is, point by point, and we can debate the issue. We don't even have to come to agreements with each other. A friend of mine used to have a lot of, de- he was a black blues musician, and he would come to the house and we would debate about race. There were mm-hmm. a lot of things about race we never agreed on, but we talked about it enough that we understood each other. Mm-hmm. We didn't reach the same views, but we both had respect for each other. One time we did something curious. We were thinking about doing a talk show about based on race, which I later found out would never happen. But we did a recording of us for two hours, and the, the the, video, the tape had two interesting qualities which we were both struck with. Number one, although we were talking about race, how much we laughed. And the other was, we never interrupted each other. Yeah, how nice. Just mutual respect. And, you know, the whole big deal about race kind of falls apart when you realize that it, it's more or less agreed that all of humanity in its present form originated from people in southern Africa and then just migrated in different parts of the world and at different latitudes, the skin color had to change to accommodate the amount of sunlight. And other than that, uh, the whole race idea is complete nonsense. Oh, by the way, I discovered with a DNA test, I'm part African. (laughs) Congratulations. So is everybody else. So is everybody else. So this is major news for our Lost Arts Radio listeners that... uh, Dr. Warner is outed as being at least part African. 
I feel like uh, this is a major moment. It's kind of like, uh, what was it, uh, Inspector Clouseau on Pink Panther. He says, aha, now we are getting somewhere. <laughs> oh, well, now you then you'll have to be careful around the jokes you tell me. I mean, before I couldn't be offended, but now then I said, if I've achieved minority status, I'm part of a protected group and I can now be offended. Yeah. Which means you you're can, wrong. It's pretty Whether well done. It's true or not. You're just, I'm offended. Yeah, exactly. And uh, yeah, this is um, interesting because I, in a university setting, I've already uh, been convicted of being a, a racist, as I think I mentioned to you before, that I said something that somebody else interpreted as having something to do with race, and the university actually uh, interrogated me for about two hours after that. I, what happened is I actually just got tired of the totally race-oriented textbooks that we were having in PhD-level health classes, and I thought that was a little strange. So this is degenerating in all areas, and I, I complained and said this is, uh, is race-oriented. It's totally irrelevant to what we're studying. And the instructor didn't say anything, but she turned me into the administration who did the interrogation. At the, at the end, they said, well, I guess you're not really racist, but somebody was offended, so you're guilty, and if you do it again, we'll throw you out of the school. And what? That's kind of yeah, that's the new justice system. It's not just happening with respect to religion. So uh, I thought you, you might find that interesting, and it, it kind of fits in with what you're describing. You know, now we're, I am so old when I remember when facts on your side were considered a way to win the argument. Now then, the facts don't matter. It's the feelings of somebody. In your case, we don't even know who was offended. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it was the instructor. All the students were more or less normal. But, you know, the instructor was highly educated, so she recognized offensive behavior when she saw it, even if it didn't exist. So. You know, I was just reading another comedian, Simon, where I read this, who said he will not do any shows on college campuses. The reason is, is you can't tell jokes anymore because somebody's always offended. That's right. That's right. And people can walk in prepared to be offended at whatever you say and get rid of you that way. So you know, I guess that's true. And and science has now discovered hate facts. And so you're pretty much, right. uh, you know, trapped right in the beginning. I understand but, now that amongst the uh, department heads and universities now in the so-called STEM uh, science, technology, engineering and math, I think that's what STEM stands for. The question is not how do we train better students, but how do we get more blacks, more minorities, and more women into our area? Well, I can tell you exactly how they'll do that. They will lower the standards till finally you can just step over them. Well, yeah, and that's really, actually, that's racist in itself, being very condescending, thinking that certain groups need different treatments than everybody else, which is ridiculous. I remember when I was teaching at uh, TSU, which is a historical black university, is that one of the professors in the sociology department advanced the idea that the reason that blacks didn't do well in math was is they taught white math. And I went, white math? <laughs> Who knew? But he said they need to teach them how the Egyptians did math and they would master it. If you could see what contortions an Egyptian had to go through in the days of the Pharaoh to add up a column of figures, I mean, the guy was a complete ignoramus in the sense of he couldn't do any math using Egyptian math anyway. And by the way, there's a reason why the Egyptian math isn't used for the same reason that Greek math and Roman math isn't used, is that the mathematics that came out of the Hindus was superior. Mm -hmm. And so we just adapted it. 
But I don't. If you're from Italy, I don't hear anybody would complain and say, "Well, I can't learn that Hindu math. I need to." And if, and if by the way, if the math, I'm just talking about simple computational math here. Actually, I yeah. should say al- arithmetic, arithmetic is what I should right. say. Right. But anyway, I, I couldn't believe it when a member of the either sociology or political science says, "Yo, they're using white math. That's the reason black students don't do." Uh, I thought. Now, what would a white number two look like? Would it look any different from a black number two? I mean, you know, I mean, other than fussing well, with your fonts on the computer. I mean, I'm not really qualified to answer because I was taught racist math with white chalk on a black chalkboard. Oh, now we're to the so, heart of the matter. Well, yeah. at least you, you're at least you're contrite. Yeah, I have to admit it, and I'll I'll try to do something to make up for it. But it seems to me that in all that you're saying. You know, the the program that has been implemented as a psychological operation to make everything racist has been very successful. And the reason that it's been successful is that we've all fallen for it. So it's like common sense has been sacrificed in favor of these crazy beliefs that are almost unintelligible how they ever came to be. And, I mean, the people who demonstrate them the best are the ones who go out and, and riot in the streets and they're not even sure what they're against, but they really are mad. I, one time, <clears throat> when I was teaching in college, there was the head of the, or not the head, but one of the math professors was named Win Mint. He was Burmese. And I said to him one day, I said, you know, Win, I hadn't realized this, but I've referred to you in racist terms. He says, what do you mean, Bill? I says, well, I've called people like you Orientals. And he said, yes, and? I said, well, that's now been decreed to be a racist term. He looked at me and he says, who makes these decisions? <laughs> exactly. And, and it, it is actually a highly organized program that's been implemented systematically, and it, it's very successful. I mean, these people are so impressive. If they ever did something positive and constructive, it would be great. They just don't seem to be interested in doing that. So well, if, if they're not going to do it, it seems like it's up to the rest of everybody to somehow reclaim what used to be called common sense. You know, what we're talking about here, though, is leadership. And somehow or another, our leadership has been persuaded to be like a bunch of cowards. And they don't want to take difficult point positions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, true. I mean, sometimes it's hard to tell whether they have lost touch so much that they don't know anymore or whether they do know and they're intentionally ignoring, you know, what's really going on. I think it varies with the individual. Well, I lost my position in a university because I was not willing to talk like the dean wanted. So how did he want you to talk? Well, first off, he didn't want to make me, didn't want me making remarks about how poorly the school was administrated. Okay. (laughs) He took umbrage with that. Right. I can see that. (laughs) <laughs> actually, I was uh, I was actually elected as chair of the faculty senate, but I never got to serve because when I wrote my position paper on my term, what it would be, I later found out that the dean of academic affairs said this man will not serve. And so not only did I become the first white man ever elected president of the faculty senate, I become the first man who was elected who couldn't serve. So wow. putting up records two at a time. Yeah. Amazing. So it was just your general attitude that was unacceptable, I guess, right? Yeah, I think that was it. I think they thought I had a bad attitude. Uh, I thought I had an attitude that dealt with improvement of process, but they didn't like to be included in the improvement part. Right. No, they're supposed to just ask for ideas like that, but you're not supposed to give them any. 
<laughs> were they, they, did they still let you keep teaching or did you have to stop that too? No, I finally had to quit. I was, uh, I wasn't politically correct enough, I guess. Mm-hmm. I mean, I would make remarks about how the history of slavery was being taught in the, in the wrong way. And I wasn't supposed to have any opinions on that subject. Right. That was before I knew I had any African blood. If I went back now, that might all be okay. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, you, you could definitely complain now, but it, it reminds me of um, one class where I was told that to be a real scientist, I just had to get rid of two things that I still had traces of, and that was emotion and opinion. And once I didn't have any one of either one of those, then I could start being a real scientist, and there was hope. Well, I've met a, a lot of scientists in my time, having been one, and they all had opinions and they all had emotions. But what they were able to do was to formulate an argument that could be moved step by step with agreement at each step or disagreement so that when we got to the conclusion, you could say, yes. Right. And now then, it's like, I, more and more, it's like you don't even need any facts at all. All you need is the right opinions. Whether they're sustained or not, it seems to be immaterial. Yeah. No, if it's acceptable, that's true. I want to go back to what we started talking about, which is what's going on in the world. And um, it it was catalyzed, the, the discussion, by what happened just recently with Tommy Robinson's arrest. And it's that he's exposing these horrific crimes that you're not supposed to know about. So if if the leaders aren't going to turn things around, which so far they're not, what I, I wonder what you think is the reason that hundreds of millions or billions of people go along with things that are clearly against what humans should know is, oh, let's see, how can I put this? Just, you know, is obviously right. Like you, you don't really want to hurt somebody else unless you have to, like self-defense or something. But they're, they're just falling right into belief systems that tell you that to make God happy, you have to kill certain groups of people or else change them into acceptable groups. Why do? I don't know. The thing that I'm interested about with the one of the things that I find interesting about the Tommy affair is that when the judge says the media couldn't report on his arrest, they all Mm -hmm. fell into line. Now, you would think that, I mean, if you're in the media. You would think that what you would want to do is report the facts. And yet, by the way, I noticed many times that when I scan headlines from news aggregators, how many times that what they talk about has nothing to do with facts at all or even events. It's opinions. Right. Like right. we're at the time where Roseanne Barr told a joke which got her fired. But the point is, is that the opinions I've lost my track of thought here, but the point is, is what I notice is that the media does not seem to be that interested in facts anymore either. They're interested in just opinions and comments mm-hmm. instead of dealing with what's actually happening. And that's what has happened with the media in England, is that the media would not give proper leadership and talk about the events that were happening. No one wants, here we have young women being raped and nobody wants to talk about it. And you kind of wonder how bad does it have to get before somebody does want to talk about it? Why doesn't the truth justify standing up and being talked about? Why well, do we not, have to sneak around and we don't want to talk about it? I don't understand. I think part of the answer to that is that there's two kinds of media now and that the, the kind with all the money and the support of the government 
is supported by the partnership of government and global corporations who actually own certain PR departments that are now called media. And in the U.S., for example, there are, I think, four or five major global corporations that own almost all of what is called the major corporate media. And they don't have any obligation to say anything true. They have an obligation to say what their owners want for social engineering, and that's what they say. And they all read off teleprompters. Even the most of the ones sitting around in opinion shows are saying exactly what they're told to say. And if they don't, they're gone. So that's, that's the major media. And then there's all these private um, media people like Tommy Robinson and lots and lots of others. And they started out by just taking their cell phone camera and go down and filming whatever was happening. And that is the part of the media that the establishment is trying to get rid of. And Tommy Robinson is representing that, which is why he got arrested. Well, you know, I've had my own... Uh I, in, in a sense, I generate news myself. Every couple of weeks, I put out another video which makes comments about reality as I see it. Yeah, I get that. And I've had many pressures from the billionaire Democrats who now run the media on the web to suppress what I say. So how do they let you know that you're not doing the right thing? Well, for instance, YouTube says we will not let you monetize any of your videos, which is like, okay, I can accept that. That's not a big deal. Mm -hmm. And now then I get noticed from people, they ask me, said, are you doing videos anymore? Because they're on the subscriber list. Well, it turns out not all the subscribers to my YouTube channel get notified when I put a new video up. Mm -hmm. My favorite one is that Google used to be, I created the term political Islam. And so it used to be, if you type that in, you saw it again and again. The first three screens were all mine. Now that two thirds of those references are gone. Facebook no longer lets people know when I post things on Facebook. So I'm still there, but I'm what they call shadow banned. Yeah, that's I don't shadow have any banning, right. Right. And these are ways that they say, Bill, we don't like what you say. Actually, let's be clear here. The, the we is, is they, the, the Southern Poverty Law Center creates a blacklist. Mm-hmm. So the um, titans of Silicon Valley just check the, top, check the uh, blacklist. They don't know who I am. They don't have time for me. Although I do find it amusing that a person such as myself is now has as his enemy the entire web community of Twitter. I used to get 2,000 used Twitter followers every month. Now I don't get 100. Wow. Wow. This all happened at the same time. Right. Yeah. In fact, I, I noticed the same thing happened to our videos in general on Facebook, not Facebook, but um, YouTube, is that when we put up a a video that was taken by somebody with a hidden camera in an elementary school where they were giving lessons on uh, the basic tenets of Islam that these people were supposed to follow. We put that up uh, because it was really well done, I thought, and it was accurate according to scripture. And um, that got, got us a strike immediately so that we could no longer live stream, but it also stopped the counters working correctly on all of our videos. Oh, so you've experienced the same censorship. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. Well, I think it's pretty dreadful, actually. Yeah, yeah. They've, got, they've gotten a lot of power, these private media uh, monopolies like Facebook and Twitter and YouTube and Google. Um, you know, what if, what if the power company said, Bill, 
we don't like the, the way you've been doing videos and stuff, so we're turning the power off to your home. And the mm -hmm. telephone company said, we don't like the conversations you're holding, we're turning you. This is what's the equivalent. What has happened is, is that the web has become, what I'm going to say, is a utility. Yeah, exactly. We forget that the telephone business started out as a private affair, but it became so big and so important, they said, no, 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 you're now a utility. And so Bell Telephone, or whoever owns my telephone now, can't mm -hmm. say to me, Bill, we, we're going to cut you off because we don't like what you're saying. It's an open channel. And that's what I am. I am a radical free speecher. I mm -hmm. challenge any authority if I so choose to do so. I'm not going to scream at you, but I'll present my reasoning. And so I think that I'm, I don't believe in hate speech laws. I don't, you shouldn't be allowed to threaten somebody's life. But in general, I don't care what jokes you tell about me. I just don't care. If I think they're funny, I'll laugh at them. Mm -hmm. I'm certainly not going to become offended and try to come over and harm you and do something to shut you up. Right. I believe in I'm a radical free speecher. And, the, and for the people that are criticizing you, you know, who do they think you're against? I think some of the people that you're trying to protect the most are Muslims. Well, it's also interesting. <laughs> if you can judge a man's worth by, by his enemies, I certainly have enough enemies, I'll say that. <laughs> Well, yeah, but you've had some guests that have all also been on our show, like Inez, and um, I mean, you really support everything that she's doing, and she's uh, she was brought up as as a Muslim, so yes. it's it's not like you're against any group of people except the ones that are trying to kill everybody. Actually, if you look at the Southern Poverty Law Center, I keep going back to them. They have a list of. Uh, criteria for being I'm what they call anti-Muslim mm, okay. I do not meet a single one of those criteria not a one but here's the secret it doesn't matter whether you meet those criteria or not there's no due process there's no way you can complain the, I suppose if you hired a big enough attorney they'd, res, they'd respond to communications so they but just let no you into the group anyway and there's nothing you can do about it that is they simply they're like bullies we yeah. can we can condemn you and we will well that's the truth of the matter we have these criteria. Well, I don't meet any of your criteria. Well, that doesn't matter. You're still on the list. <laughs> yeah, that's great. It, it kind of is leading to what China is pioneering right now, which is the social credit score. You know about that, right? Yes, yes, yes. Well, I think that uh, who is the lady the, uh, from Massachusetts, the senator, the blonde-headed woman, uh, the one who changed to, claims to be part Cherokee or something. Oh, yeah, yeah. Elizabeth yeah. Warren. Right. Today she praised China as being a great government. Well, I think she would probably because being a leftist by oh. nature, she too mm -hmm. believes in censorship. I bet she wouldn't agree to any. I bet she'd love to shut me down. Yeah, I mean, that's, that, that's how you have world peace is no dissent. <laughs> well, you know, they had that in China for a long time. There was no dissent at all. Yeah, I don't. The thing of it is, is I know some people that were under that, and they didn't consider it very peaceful at all. Yeah, because you just brought up the example. Well, what if the telephone company or the electric company could cut you off because you were unacceptable in your opinions? That actually will be possible under the new advanced social credit score. Yep. So, what what keeps coming back to me because I like solutions, you know, not just. I mean, once you've clarified what a problem is, which we probably need to keep doing, but once we've done that, then the obvious only real reason for that is so that we can accurately figure out how to fix it. And well, it's, it's, we have a human rights problem. Okay. 
in my opinion. That is, I view the ability to voice your opinion as a human right. Yeah. Call me radical, if you will, but I just think that every human being ought to be able to express their opinions without, we haven't talked much about this, self-censorship. The most vicious censorship is self-censorship. I was listening to a a Brit talk about how what had happened to language in in Britain today. Mm -hmm. He said, it used to be you just, whatever you did, you just talked about it and didn't concern about it. He said, today, if you're speaking with somebody who you don't know well, that is, they're not a close friend, you immediately start censoring your speech. What if I say, oh, I won't say that because it might offend him or it might cause trouble. Mm-hmm. And so we're living in a, the worst kind of censorship, which is the state has trained us to self-censor. Mm-hmm. And I think what we need, to, what I do, of course, is I just say what I think. But I've given some thought to this, and I wonder if, if I took part as a racist in the, uh, since that's one of the things I'm called, and I must be if they call me that, I took part in the civil rights movement in the 60s. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we used a technique called mass civil disobedience. Right, I remember. An example was blacks weren't allowed to eat at this lunch counter, so they, there was a huge number walked up. They all sat at the lunch counter, occupied all the seats, and you could either serve them or shut down your business. Mm-hmm. This was mass civil disobedience. And so that as a consequence, number one, it makes it difficult to enforce the law because if you have enough people doing the breaking the law, then the police can't arrest them all. Right. So right. They, in the end, can't arrest any of them. So, with it, but it gives strength and courage. There's very few people who will act on their own. So, if we had some sort of anti censorship group in which would deliberately provoke censorship, but to do so in a large enough group that they couldn't actually, the censorship couldn't happen. Now, how we go about this, I don't know, but somehow or another, we need to start creating groups that encourage breaking the law if they're breaking, if they're repressing our human rights. Or civil rights, if you want to use that term. The authorities definitely agree with you that the organized groups have ability to do these things more efficiently. So because what they do is as soon as they sense that a a group is threatening to become like that, they'll infiltrate and corrupt it. And they wouldn't be putting all that energy into it if it wasn't powerful and and effective. Well, I I have been repressed a little bit myself and all I can say is I ain't stopping. Yeah, I think that's really good. And um, somehow there needs to be a, a large number of people like that that remind everybody, you know, we don't have to fall for this division thing of fighting each other or worrying about who has the right or the wrong religion or anything. Just it's real simple if people just respect each other and cooperate, about 90% of these issues will be gone. And by the way, this is not an issue of the right or the left. Although right. the left seems to show more fondness for censorship, I'm not sure that the right doesn't express its own censorship in its own ways. Yeah. But it's not a left... Look, honest opinion is not a matter of left or right. Now, what I object to from the left when it comes to opinion and censorship is when they bring out Antifa or such mm-hmm. groups try to repress. Yeah. I mean, well, they tried to do that with me by writing about me on the front page of the local newspaper. They thought that, oh, well, we'll shame him and embarrass him. Mm-hmm. Well, I must admit, the first time you appear on the first front page of the newspaper on the Sunday edition, being called a racist, hater, bigot, Islamophobe, it's a kick in the stomach. But after that, you realize, you know, they just gave me their best shot. I'm still standing. I'm yeah. okay here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. 
No, what, what's wrong with groups like Antifa is they, they do it by going out and hitting people with bike locks, like you mentioned before, stuff like that. And uh, I don't mind hitting people with bike locks if you're hitting the right person. Now, I don't think hitting a person <laughs> with a bike lock is the right thing unless he's trying to harm you. But by expressing well, yeah, opinion, you know, I'm not sure how we're harming somebody. Right. No, this is not defensive. But um, I don't know. So I, I think, I still think underneath the really bad programming, there are human beings hidden, and they have to be dug out somehow and reached. And I think a lot of attention needs to be put on to how to do that. In fact, I think it's the biggest fear of the power structure that I can think of is that we would ever become aware of who we actually are, which is not all these divided groups, but just human individuals. I mean, I have a lot of friends who you would describe as left of center, not as many as I used to, because once I started talking about Islam, some of them chose not to associate with me, and I'm like, fine. But I've met decent, nice people from all shades of political spectrum. And I've also met some jerks who voted like I did, by the way. Yeah. But I mean, I just, look... I keep coming back to it. I'm radical about free speech because I think if once you do take away free speech, you don't really, all your other freedoms will collapse very quickly. Well, yeah, I totally agree. And, and that's a lot of why what happened with Tommy Robinson was important. And, and it's going on in a lot of countries, in, as you said, in Europe. And uh, in general, it seems like the Eastern European countries are resisting the, the move towards censorship and tyranny more than Western Europe. Have you found that to be true? It's exactly true, and I, when I was first went over there, my question was, why do so many young people oppose political Islam? And the answer was the same from everybody. They said, we have experienced tyranny. We have experienced the SS. We've experienced the KGB. We've, we've lived behind the Iron Curtain. We know what it is to be under the heel of tyranny, and we see Islam as being tyranny with a god. By the way, speaking of tyranny, there's a most interesting museum that, you'll have, that I've ever been to in Budapest. It's called House of Terror. Orban, who's the president of, of Hungary, caused this uh, museum to be created. And the museum is in a four-story building that was the original head of the SS, where the SS stayed. And once the Nazis were driven out, the KGB moved in and lived there the next. Wow. Now, it turns out once the Iron Curtain fell, the KGB, the Russians, picked up and left, and they left all their files behind. Wow. wow. So what they've done is, is they have taken all of these records, and they have recreated the secret police in the middle of this original four-story building, which is quite large. Mm-hmm. And it's a most amazing thing to see a museum of terror. Basically, it's a museum of repression. There was one thing in it that I was, when I traveled to Europe, I have people with me. That is, I'm not there as a tourist, so I have mm-hmm. students mm-hmm. with me. Mm-hmm. And uh, we went into this large room that was barely lit, and there was a beaded curtain, and behind this beaded curtain was a four-door black sedan. And I turned to Nikki, who was my student with me, and I says, Nikki, what is this? She says, oh, that's the black car. I said, what? She says, we have an expression in, Buda- in uh, Hungarian. If you had a really lousy day, you say the black car came. She says what that refers to is the secret police always drove up in a black four-door sedan to your house at night, 
And when you stepped into that four-door sedan, you would never be seen again. Wow. Wow. So this is a museum devoted to censorship and terror and repression. I found it fascinating. And the reason Orban did this was he says, our, our ancestors have suffered. I want our youth to see what it meant to suffer under these regimes. Yes. And he even had the original torture chambers in the basement. My wife was there and she says, what is this? And, and Nikki told her. And she says, I can't stay here anymore. It is somewhat penetrating to your soul to stand in front of an iron cell that you knew was used for torture. Mm -hmm. It looks just like in the movies was one of the impressions I had. But anyway, I love what Orban did because he says there was a time when we were not free to speak. And here's what it looked like. Wow. Wow. Incredible. So it is possible for good people to get into public office. I love Victor Orban, but now he takes, <laughs> he takes a lot of, a lot of heat from those in Western Europe who call him very bad names. And he's like, no, we're going to do it Hungary's way. So it is possible to fight against repression. But what has had to happen is, is people had to experience a lot of repression before they said no. And what you and I are talking about is we're on a slippery slope here. It ain't that bad yet, but nevertheless, it's worse than it used to be. And what you and I are trying to say is we don't want to go further down this road. Right. We want to have people to be free to speak their mind. I mean, it's well, a wonderful thing when you can speak your mind. And what Orban is uh, getting attacked by is, prime. well, one of the things is the organization called the EU, right? I do not understand the EU, but I've learned to despise it from visiting with it because, you know, I don't need an organization that's part of my government who's going to tell me what, what size cucumbers I can buy. I mean, I really yeah. don't need that. The first yeah. time I ran into the EU was in Denmark, and the Danes, who have all of their life as a civilization, have either fished or raised dairy cattle and milk and cheese. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, they had a meeting somewhere in the EU, and they said, no, 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 you're not doing that anymore. This country is going to do the milk and cheese, and this country is going to do the fishing. You're not going to do that anymore. And I'm like, what? And then the EU said they wanted the schools to teach that in Denmark, if you love being a Dane, you are a racist. Wow. To be proud of your cultural heritage means you're a racist. Now, then, why do they want to call them a racist? Because racist is the worst term in the world. So, therefore, you don't want to say you're proud of being a Dane. You don't want to say you're proud of Danish history because then you'll be called a racist. And wow. here we take away part of a person, which is part of what's happening here, is that they want to take away your whole personhood, which is to say that your past is shameful. Well, I don't see anything shameful about being a Dane. Good gracious. Nor do I find anything shameful about being an American or Bulgarian or whatever else. It's just part of your history. Yeah, so they're establishing the idea that any group is a race, and so everybody has to be all the same, a global uh, subject, I guess, right? And I don't, I've never under, I, I just, I simply, there's a mindset that people have who are doing this, and part of this mindset is a supreme arrogance, that they don't trust Look, what the Brits have said when they say we don't want people talking about this is we can no longer trust our citizens. Do you hear what I'm saying? Uh, yeah, you don't want you speaking because we can't trust you to say the right word, so therefore we won't let you speak at all. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's infiltrated all of society. That's what we're being taught in higher education, too, is that if, if you want to be a successful academic or a scientist, you have to stop, you know, 
giving any weight to your own opinion whatsoever, and a discussion between scientists is just quoting acceptable information. One of the things that I just like about the whole thing about global warming is, is that people want to say it's a voting matter, and I want to say it's a scientific matter. And so then when I want to offer up criticisms, they go, well, see, you're just a bad person. Yeah, well. You want to challenge global warming. And I think anything should be able to be challenged. Yeah, you may not be right when you challenge it, but I think you ought to be able to challenge it and at least talk about it. I think that's the difference between science and religion and also the difference between religion and spiritual investigation. Because in the real spiritual quest or in real science, you have to question everything. Otherwise, you're not going to find out what's true and what isn't. But when you make everything into a religion, you just obey orders. And if you question it, you might have to be killed. Well, the killing, by the way, can take place in several ways. Like in my case, they just basically said you're fired. Right. Have, that's, that's much better than receiving a bullet to the brain pan, but it is trying to destroy me as a professional. Right, right. And, I'm, of course, my remark is I've been thrown out of better places than this. <laughs> and I have. I've been thrown out of some fine institutions. Yeah. Probably well, I said. Right. Yeah, I guess that's good for a resume, but, you know, <laughs> I, it, it doesn't seem like the, way, the most desirable way to world peace, you know, just silencing all the dissent. And I, well, I'm just, I, I'm, I really want us to succeed at some point soon in finding a solution to turning all this stuff around so that people aren't happily running into the indoctrination programs and just starting to be zombies. I guess it's the the least effort-intensive way to live, right? Just do whatever you're told instead of thinking. You know, I've tried that, but I don't sleep well at night. No, and I don't think anybody does. They have to get drunk in order to not feel, you know, too distressed by it. I was raised by an old woman, my grandmother, and she had the bad habit of saying what she thought. Right. And she passed that on to me, so I'm afraid that my, as her grandson that I'm carrying forward her tradition is I offend a lot of people, but I also please a lot of people with what I say. But I, I'm never malicious in what I say. Listen carefully to what I do. I never criticize Muslims. I don't even criticize Islam. I just say, here's the fact. Right. And if you don't like, you can draw your own conclusions. That is, my approach to the study of Islam is very scientific. I like to think that years of training in science actually changed me to the point where I was a better thinker. Yeah, exactly. Um, and and you were mentioning the EU t- wanting to tell everybody exactly how to live, but there's a different attitude in in the various countries in in Eastern and Western Europe toward the EU and different amounts of resistance toward being dominated by it, right? You were mentioning the Orban's country, but... What well, about beginning to, well, for instance, on the business of migration, yeah. when the migrants showed up in Budapest, the government told them, you will receive porta-potties and water. That's the end of it. You won't get food. You won't get anything else. You won't get blankets. So what happened was is they did that for two days, and they moved on to Germany. Mm-hmm. Now, Orban was viciously attacked when he said, look, I'm the president of a nation. We don't need these people. My job is to take care of Hungarians first. Right. And of course, according to the EU, that's a vicious, racially hateful. Yeah, it's obviously. It's like, oh, you want to take care of your own family first? I'm like, you go, Victor. 
but he gets yeah. a lot of pressure from the EU. So, so how did they get into Victor's country to begin with? I mean, anyway, how did they cross the border into it? Well, they used to walk in, but you see, Victor said, you know, we have a device which will prevent that. So they now have uh, uh, fences which prevent that. Now, yeah. here's, what, here's what they did to incorporate the EU law. The EU wants to tell Hungary who it is and what it shall do. And Hungary says, maybe not so much. So when they built their fence, it isn't on the border. It's set inside of the border. Mm-hmm. So therefore, when people come they, to Hungary as an illegal immigrant, they put them back outside the fence. So they're but still in Hungary. The Hungary, has not, Hungary has followed now the letter of the law. They haven't thrown them out of Hungary. It's just they can't stay in the part of the Hungary where the food and jobs are. Right, right. That was smart. Wow. So, I that was quite clever. Yeah, a lot of people are wondering how the EU ever got in a position of telling uh, formerly sovereign governments what to do. I don't fully understand that. It started off, I think, in a fairly straightforward way of wanting to reduce internal trade barriers, which I think is a good thing. Mm-hmm. Then they wanted to reduce, reduce internal barriers for, in other words, when you drive from Czech Republic into Hungary, there's no border crossing. That is, well, there's a border there, but you don't have to show your papers. Yeah. So I think some of the motivations were good, but now then they've gotten into where they want to run your life. Well, right, but the other thing about the trade barriers that seem innocuous and, and aren't necessarily is that if you've got two countries next to each other with completely different economies and cultures, and in one the people are paid $0.10 cents an hour for labor, and the other they're making $10, the country with, with the economy that pays $10 an hour for labor will lose every bit of its industry if there are no trade barriers and basically be destroyed. So what, what used to be called protectionism in a good way is now demonized, but the word was correct. It was protecting your own economy. Well, so, in my own life, I take care of myself first, my family next, and then come my friends, and then come strangers. So it's an expanding area of how I care for, but I have some priorities there. And I, I, I take care of my own first, then I'll take care of you. Right. Now, well, I don't have any objection to helping other people. It's just that I have a priority system. Now, I guess that makes me a racist hater, bigot Islamophobe. Yeah, that's been documented well. But I think that, <laughs> that, that works for countries, too, because if they take care of their own country first, then they've got something useful to offer in cooperation with the other ones. Now, I love this. I love the people who talk about, you know, we shouldn't have barriers. I've noticed that every one of these people live in a house that has a locked door to it. Funny, exactly. in their own personal life, they have barriers. Yeah. It's like yeah. If, you, if you don't believe in any barriers in nations, take the lock off your front door. And by the way, what are you feeding me for supper? And the tools you have in the shop, I need some of those. I'll take them with me. Thank you. Goodbye. Yeah, exactly right. And, and yeah, same thing. And that, that was one of the early statements that came out recently from the Vatican saying, remember in the early part of the Trump campaign that Trump was not a, a Christian. He was a really bad person because he wanted a wall to prevent illegal immigration coming across the border into America. And the Pope issuing that statement was behind a 200-foot wall or so that was built to prevent the Muslims from breaking into the Vatican, right? Well, this is true here. You know, it reminds me once again... People want to talk about gun control, and I'm of the school of thought that gun control means consistently be able to hit the target. But mm-hmm. 
But I just, there's an unwritten human right, in my opinion, which is the right to be left alone. And some of these people, I want to just leave me alone. Yeah, and of that course, that's another everything. clue for being called a racist, hater, bigger Islamophobe, I guess. Yeah, true. And, uh, you know, I think part of the problem is that government, which gives itself the authority to rule people, it attracts people who like to tell other people what to do. And somehow more of the people who are just doing it to try to do some good work need to get in there other than people who want to use it for their own uh, advancement, you know. I don't know. We have to figure out how to make that system work better somehow. Well, I, I go back to the fact that I, if we could create a society in which you could, on a, on a given Friday, go out and, as a group, break some laws you don't like. And when I say laws you don't like, for instance, I'm talking about censorship. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So that we can do it together. Because we need... Look, I don't like Antifa at all, but at least I give them credit for this. They know that they can do more as a group than they can as an individual. That's true. The fact, I think the left in general appreciates that more than the right does. Yeah, and they found some good sources of support and, and financing, too. Oh, by the way, when I go to Hungary, the Hungarians always apologize to me for George Soros. <laughs> yeah, that's where he came from, I guess. <clears throat> by the way, one of the things they have is in the House of Terror mm-hmm. is there's a hall you walk down. Now, remember, the KGB left all their files. Why they did that, I don't know. Probably laziness. Yeah. This was after Glasnost. Anyway, you walk down this hall, and it's all these pictures of the informers that worked with the KGB. Mm. Soros' picture is on there. Wow, how amazing. Yeah, I think anyway, they... you did that. That's, and by the way, some Hungarians told me that you went down to the museum and you looked, and hoping you wouldn't find anybody you knew. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, Soros has managed to be incredibly successful in what he's doing. Oh, he is astoundingly successful. He's very cold-blooded. He, he is, in his own way, a scientific thinker, and uh, he is a formidable enemy. He's totally dedicated to, to de- taking down Western civilization because he sees it as a bad civilization. It's funny, it gave him enormous wealth after he started out poor, but he despises it. Um, yeah, it is really amazing. I just saw him in an interview that he would rather not exist. I I don't know if it was on 60 Minutes or what it was. He was talking about the period when he was, uh, I guess, what, 14 years old mm-hmm. in Hungary, and he was uh, finding fellow Jews that he could turn into the Nazis to, to, so that they could steal everything they had and, and take them away to the death camps. And he was saying... He felt fine about it. It was one of the best periods of his life when his character was being molded. And he would do it again, and there really wasn't a problem. And if somebody, if, if he hadn't done that, somebody else would have found the opportunity instead. That's cold. So interesting that people like that, you know, can uh, come into so much power. Well, he has done so, and he is a, he is a formidable opponent. He's totally dedicated to what he does. Yeah, amazing. So we need to see similar dedication and focus uh, actually put into doing things that are good. Well, in a way, I agree with you. Right. I mean, in a way, he's teaching us. He's saying, really pay attention to what you're doing and try to do a good job and you'll be successful. 
And I don't see why that can't apply to positive things, too. I agree. Right. And and I think, you know, you made a good point that I think was very important about uh, not having anything whatsoever against the Muslim people. And I, I totally agree with that. I have really good friends among Muslims. And I think what I would like to somehow find a way to convey, whether it's with Islam or any other religion that for whatever reason starts telling its members that they have to convert or kill everybody else that's not in the right religion, there has to, I think there's a level of, of uh, direct connection to reality that exists within people that is deeper than the belief system that they've been taught. And if they could get back in touch with that, they would know when they're being told stuff that's crazy. And that has to be woke up again, seems to me. Well, I agree with you once again. But what are you and I saying? Can we talk? That's really what you're saying. Well, more than talk, I want to I somehow, you know, because of work I do on myself first, not criticizing other people, and realize, you know, the things that I follow without thinking and learn to correct those and wake up and see things as they are and then share that somehow with people that are following belief systems that make them a menace to humanity so that they can wake up and get out of that trance. Well, I do what I can on that issue. What I try to bring forth is here's what's in your text yeah. without criticism. That's the first step. It's, it's interesting. I go back again to the Southern Poverty Law Center. I don't criticize Islam. I don't criticize Muslims. Right. I say I do, but I don't. Yeah, I've got nearly 200 videos. I've got a dozen books. I've got endless newsletters, endless interviews. Find any, you've, you've interviewed me now several times. Have I ever yeah. criticized Islam? Have I ever criticized a Muslim? I just tell you, here's what the doctrine is, and here's what that implies. That's all yeah. I do. No, I, I, the feeling I get from you is like a history teacher or um, what do you call it when you're teaching uh, current history that's being made? I guess it's civics or something. This is what's actually going on. This is what people are following, and this is how they're doing it. And um, and these are some of the people that are breaking out of that programming, too, because you've yep. talked about them also. Actually, one of the least known figures about Islam is it's as, somebody did a study. It was pure research or not, I don't know. Out of the American, in America, the Muslims who come here, 23% of them are become apostates. Yeah, wow, that's a lot. That's a lot. Yeah. You're As saying, a matter of fact, I one time saw a video of a uh, well-known imam who said, as Muslims, we need to start discussing something. He says, we're losing members and at a rapid rate. He says, no one wants to talk about this. Part of the reason is, of course, apostasy is a serious crime in Islam. It's a capital offense, right? It, and we, may we remind, capital means the top of the column. And when we say it's a capital offense, it means the head can be removed. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Really bad for your situation after that. So uh, they're saying 23% of all the uh, people who are Islamic in the U.S. end up leaving it? Is that what yes. you said? Yes. Wow. And and do they do that officially, or do they just quietly stop? Well, now, there's another terms. issue. Most of them quietly just don't say anything. Very yeah. few stand up and become uh, apostates in public. Uh, by the way, there's something unique in history about this study of Islam. 
Islam has been around for 1400 years and in today's time we have two things that are happening that have never happened before in history. Thing number one, apostates are speaking out in public. Amil mm -hmm. Amani, Annie Cyrus, many others, ex-Muslim and others are, are saying, no, we're not members anymore. That is, and we're speaking about this issue. Right. And by the way, Annie Cyrus, who speaks about this issue, is called a racist, hater, bigot, Islamophobe by the Southern Poverty Law Center. Wow. But the other thing is that's happened is, is for the first time in history, the study of is the Islamic doctrine is now available and can be understood by any high school graduate. Actually, you, you could use your uh, if you if you can read simple magazines, then you can read the doctrine of political Islam. This is unique in history because up to this point, the, the doctrine of Islam was always noted by Middle East scholars, theologians, and other such people. Mm -hmm. Not only the experts knew about it, but today anybody can become their own personal expert on the subject of Islam. This is unique. It gives me hope. Okay, so how do they do that? Well, it's, I mean, I sell books, and I'm not here to hawk my books. You can buy no, my but I, I read your books, and I think people need to know about them because they're great. And I'm not saying that to make money or getting any money from you. I'm saying that because I really um, got tremendous benefit out of reading your books, and I think it would be good to explain to people what they are. Well, what I've done is, is I've taken the Quran, the, the, which is everybody's heard of and few people have read, the life of Muhammad called the Sirah, and his traditions called the Hadith. And I've made these easy to understand. They're small books, deliberately so. And you can learn what the Islamic doctrine of the Sharia means. And you can find out who Muhammad was, by the way, who was a fascinating man. And all of these books are found on my website, politicalislam.com. Uh, they're made, I'm a scholar myself, but I don't write for scholars, I write for the ordinary person. When I was a professor, my best skill was that I could take a complex subject and make it so that anybody could understand it. Well, not anybody, but most anybody could understand it. Well, no wonder they threw you Islam. out. You, you misunderstood. You were supposed to do the opposite. Well, I hate to tell you this, but having spent some years in university, I counted up one time as a lot of years. Mm -hmm. Not just my years as a professor, but being a graduate student and a student. There are many professors who are, their main purpose in life is to convince you how smart they are. That's what I'm talking about. You were supposed to make up really complex language no one could follow. Well, my training in math made me believe that the best solution is follows Occam's razor. It is the mm -hmm. simplest solution. Right. So that's what I've tried to do is to give you the simplest solution. And I, the thing I loved most about being a teacher was you could uh, to see a student's puzzle face and you explain it and all of a sudden the lights come on. It's like, oh, got it. Yeah, that to me is that to me is the grand reward for teaching is to turn the lights on inside somebody. Yeah. That's what I want to do with my books is make it easy to understand and interesting to understand. I guess that's part of being easy. If it's interesting, it, it makes itself easy. Well, you're also not. Another thing you were violating is you're you're not supposed to know anything about something that's not your exact degree. Right. And I don't you know, think you. You don't have a degree in Islam, as far as I know, right? No, I do not. This is an interesting thing. I'm going to put forth a theory here. All of the great minds, every, the, the great advancements that have been done intellectually were done by people who are self-taught on that particular issue. Right. That is, Newton did not go to school to learn calculus. Newton created calculus, so he was a self-study, <laughs> an autodidact. Yeah. So 
the self-educated person is the highest form of education. And yet I'm told, well, since you didn't take a degree in this, then you can't know anything. Really? I find that something absurd on the face of it. I've always told people, if you think I can't understand it, I want you to show me the thing I cannot understand. I would be amused. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, I I think it's exciting to to run into anybody that remembers what a real teacher is supposed to be and, and actually did it and is still doing it. It's amazing. And but I was you also got to release. I was released of my duties because of my free speech. Right. Exactly. Well, teachers are being transformed into facilitators of acceptable understanding. You know, I'm sorry to tell you, but you're more right than you think. People will actually not say what they really think in order to please the organization they belong to. And I just never was able to do that. Now, by the way, I don't mean I'm going to rant at you, and if I doesn't mean I'm even going to try to offend you, but if the subject comes up, I will let you know what I think. Mm-hmm. And if you don't agree with it, we can talk about that. I don't get bent out of shape. You know, it used to be that people would enjoy getting a certain teacher in elementary school or a professor in college or anything because that particular individual had life experience and wisdom that they shared in their class. Now you would never know because if they don't say exactly what the program says to teach the students, then they get fired. I'm going to give to you the original structure for the university, which was invented in Europe. And the way it worked was, is you paid the professor directly. You didn't go through a bursar's office or anything else. You didn't cut the, you, the college. You paid the professor, not the college. Mm-hmm. The professor did not give you an exam. He gave you a lecture, which was to teach you how to pass the university's exam. Now, he and other professors created the exam you would take, but you would take an, and the paper wasn't graded by the professor. So he prepared you for an athletic event, if you want to call it that, using your brain. That is, you yeah. were going to play against the university, and he wanted you to win. So what happened was, through a process of self-selection, the best professors had the most students and made the most money. Because right. they turned out the winners on the university exam. I that almost sounds like a free, a free market system in a way. Yes. But I love the fact the professor didn't give you the test. He didn't grade your test. He was part of a group that gave you the test and part of a group that graded it. So coming to class all the time, you wanted to do it because it was going to help you pass the course. Right. I mean, I, it's, it was the original structure, and I love the idea. It's a lot like an apprenticeship of learning, right? Yes. You, and let me tell you this. If you use that system in universities today, there'd be a lot of professors who would go on welfare. Well, you, you, most of them have just memorized a bunch of stuff instead of learning it. That was something I never did when I taught. I never copied my work from a piece of paper. I said, we're going to work on this topic or this. And I always did it in front of the class so they could see how I was, my method as I was solving the problem. Right, right. Yeah, I, I've been very impressed in at the university level with how complex everything has to be, and as if that somehow gives it respectability, and everything has to go back and forth between all these committees, and they all have to argue about what's acceptable and what isn't. Not why, because that's irrelevant. You know, it, it's like a racist concept. What matters is whether it's just acceptable and in line with policy. It, it's like another religion, which is the whole subject we're talking about. Well, it's certainly an ideology that you're not encouraged to. And, 
You know, we get back to the same thing again and again. As human beings, we need to have a freedom to, do, to express who we are, and part of the expression of who we are is our thoughts. And you, that doesn't mean you have to agree with mine, I don't have to agree with yours, but we shouldn't be repressed to the degree that we are, because being repressed like that is a form of neuroses. And so we're turning out universities have become, and by the way, let me say something else about universities. I don't think everybody needs to go to a university at all. I'm not remotely for that. I think universities should be smaller in terms of dealing with people who actually want to be there. The first time I saw what was happening to people who didn't want to be in school was during the Vietnam War, and I was getting my doctorate, so I was an instructor. Mm-hmm. And it immediately became clear to me that a lot of people were coming into the School of Engineering. Why? Because they wouldn't be drafted. Right. Well, what happened? The department heads looked at this and said, oh, this is wonderful. We get more and more students, more and more money. No. But the quality of is, instruction is going down, 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 because we have to keep lowering the standards to keep these people in the department. Yeah, Besides that, they're they, like barnacles on the hall of the intellectual. They weren't even interested in what was going on. No. Hmm. So they shouldn't have been in school at all. Well, so, all right, you're saying that most people don't need to go to the university, but I think you would say that given the current world situation, it would be good for a lot of people to learn about Islam, the subject that you're I think a person should be able to read books and think on his own. That is, I advance the idea that the best education is self-education. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, what I want, to, in my opinion, the average person who's going to hire an employee needs somebody who can read books without pictures in them and write a good memo business letter mm-hmm. and have some intellectual curiosity. If you have those simple items, you can soon become knowledgeable about any subject you choose to do so. Yeah, yeah. So there's the ability to learn. So for the the world right now, I guess, has something like seven or a little over seven billion people in it, right? From the latest figures that they've got. And Some number like that. I think that um, for context of the subject that we're talking about, which is developments in Islam and things in society in general, there's about a, a billion and a half of those seven point something that are in the religion of Islam and that the families are generally large of people in Islam, partly because they feel like this will help with the jihad of taking over the population and becoming the main, uh, main group that's in the world. And I think by 2030 or something, there's supposed to be more than 3 billion in that group. And so it's really important, the mentality that the people within the religion of Islam uh, develop. And I would say, you know, I'm really interested in, with all the background of study that you've got in the scripture and Muhammad's life and the Sunnah and all these things, if you could give a message to the people who are born within the religion of Islam and have been hearing about it since birth, and they would actually listen to you and consider what you're saying, what would you want them to think about? To study the life of Muhammad, to learn who the Muhammad the man was. It's a fascinating life. You need to know in full. And there's 89 verses in the Quran that say he's the perfect Muslim. So I would say to every Muslim and every non-Muslim, know the life of Muhammad. It will change who you are and what you do. Okay, okay. Okay. I think that's good advice. I mean, I've already followed it, but I'll continue to, to learn. And by the way, didn't possible. you find his life to be fascinating? 
Yeah, it was incredible. It was totally incredible. And one thing that Muhammad was, was very successful at what he chose to do. Oh, overwhelmingly. He was a very practical man, a very practical thinker. I mean, I'm not being ironic when I say that every, every, every person in the world should know the life of Muhammad, both Muslim and non-Muslim. Yeah, I completely agree. And there, there are people complaining in the U.S. that uh, kids are having to learn about Islam. I think it's a great idea if it were done accurately. Ah, but see, I've read some of the textbooks. What we don't get in the textbooks is the whole truth. Right. They just need the to say, go ahead, teach everybody about Islam, but just make it accurate. And do the whole truth. No, no, no. Right. I mean, if, if I could get my fantasy, everyone would know the Sirah, everyone would know the Hadith, and then they would understand the Quran. Yeah. Now, yeah. this would produce effects which many people do not anticipate, but nevertheless, they would be acting from knowledge. Yeah, exactly, based on understanding. So, I guess the bottom line is that's part of the wish to wake everybody up and give a chance for humanity to survive and turn into something good. That's my dream. So, well, um, that was incredible. A lot to think about. So thank you again for oh, thank giving you, us Richard. so much I enjoy time. our conversations. Me too. That was fun. And um, hopefully we'll be back doing this again soon. Okay. Thanks a lot. All right. Talk to you soon. Thanks. Bye-bye. All right, guys. There goes Dr. Bill Warner. Definitely want to thank him for giving me the tools to learn about Islam. I really wanted to do that. There, It's been in the news so much for years now, and uh, I really didn't have much deep understanding of Islam until I made use of the tools that Dr. Warner has available at uh, politicalislam.com. And you should know it's probably something really valuable because of how much he's hated by uh, criminal groups like SPLC and uh, other ones that are calling anybody who exposes things that you're not supposed to know about as hate speech, which is total nonsense. You know, it's a way to get rid of uh, educational information, which you really need when there's important stuff going on in the world having to do with groups like this. And um, I, I really recommend his books. They're not his opinion. They're tools that you can use to get the uh, direct opinions and teachings of uh, Muhammad and indirectly of Allah. And uh, as I said in our discussion, I really think that uh, I agree that kids in school should be given education in Islam, but real education in Islam, what not what some imam says or what an academic says about it or somebody who says it, you know, it is one thing or another. It It should be learned directly from Muhammad out of respect for uh, his position as prophet of Allah and that's the way to find out what what Islam says and you can tell which groups are following it and which groups are just not uh, not doing it at all so um, and, and I don't mean radical Islam or secular Islam or any other kind of Islam or social change Islam or whatever those are all different versions separate from the real Islamic teachings which only come from Muhammad and uh I wanted to get the real original teachings of Islam from Muhammad like like I do from every important uh, group and teacher in the world. So Dr. Warner's contribution has made that incredibly easier now. Um, and you know what he's taught, as far as I can tell, and I, I've paid close attention, is that Islam is about living to please Allah. 
by using Muhammad as the perfect man, your model for every detail of life, and I mean every detail. It, it's all laid out in the three major scriptures of uh, Islam, which are not just the Quran. The Quran's really not even the majority of it. Um, or if you're a woman or a girl, you need to take everything that Muhammad said as your exact guide in life. And the reason Islam is especially important to study right now and understand in its original ver true version is that it's being used right now by the elite, so-called elite of the world uh, for their agenda, which is not Islamic, it just makes use of it. And the global rulers have the agenda to destabilize society and cause fear and terror so that the theory is we'll all beg to give up our remaining freedoms in favor of stronger government you know, to keep us safe. And they find that Islam right now is perfect for that. Uh, and if they flood Western countries with uh, people who are willing to live according to what is, Muhammad said you need to do, which is conquer and kill everybody who's not Islamic and convert them or uh, kill them, this is right up the alley of the global rulers, and that's why they're working with Islam, bringing it into Western Europe and Eastern Eastern Europe where they can, and uh, destabilizing the Middle East, bringing it into the United States and other places, Canada and stuff. And uh, the rulers um, have programmed the elected leaders to uh, facilitate all that. So it's really important to understand what it's about. Um, and speaking of religion in general, I, I want to share something with you from my own experience of, of decades and really this this whole lifetime and more. And that is that, you know, what Muhammad and uh, all these other teachers of religion are talking about God, I find that reality, the source that we came from to be real, not just an idea. And what are its characteristics? It's incredibly beautiful. Um, the source of all love and light and life and healing, all the healing comes directly from there. Doctors can't do it. It's only done by that conscious life force that comes straight to us from our source. And in my experience so far, and I can tell you from a long time, it's not some big, stern, vicious, unstable guy who just flies into a rage and labels people who disobey him uh, as uh, worthy of being murdered and hates all of those guys and wants to not just kill them, uh, murder is not enough. He wants to sell them, send them into perpetual torture. That that's a human version of of God. There are really beings like that on what I would call the lower astral levels. But that's not a God that you would uh, like being connected to if you know what they're like. And uh, if God is like that, nobody would really be able to love Him at all. It would just be a a facade based on total fear that if you displease him in any way, he'll just throw you into uh, perpetual torture, no chance of parole or ever getting out. And um, if we're supposed to love God, which all these religions seem to say, but they give you a God that's not lovable, is a really nasty guy, a definite stern male figure who wants to uh, do really bad things to you if you don't do what he wants. But if you're really able to, to love God, then it must be some infinite, incredible being of infinite love that would inspire love on our part, not somebody who would inspire fear. It's because 
love and fear are not compatible at all. You know, fear of God is a complete oxymoron. You don't you don't need fear to stabilize yourself in devotion to God. Love is, works a lot better for that. So if your religion or any religion or any belief system tells you that God wants you to kill people and enslave them and steal from them and conquer them because they're just subhuman anyway, right? And uh, you can celebrate that they get killed and you don't. And uh, you have to do bad things to all the people he hates to get your reward. It means, if you keep your common sense about you, it means that religion and God are two very different things in that case. And you can't follow both of them because they're totally uh, going in opposite directions. So you're only responsible for what you do, not when anybody else does. But you are absolutely responsible for every thought every word, every condemning thought towards other people, no matter who it is, um, no matter what any system says. And there is something operating inside our own consciousness that makes sure that we're going to experience the results of whatever we put out there. So I'm just saying, you know, we need to think before going along with the herd on any level, religion, medical systems, academic systems, government systems, really think twice because in history, all of these kinds of systems have inspired people to do terrible things. And if they're in touch with who they are and where they come from, they would never go along with any of this stuff. Even if you've got thousands of screaming devotees getting all excited about killing all the subhuman people that aren't in your religion, really think because you're going to be responsible for what you do. And I'm not advocating anything out of fear at all. I'm just saying out of intelligence, do what's going to have good results. And killing what some God tells you or the people he hates, there's something wrong, a lot wrong with that picture. So I just, you know, waking up, which a lot of people are talking about now, is, is much more than being able to list what's going on bad in the world. Waking up means becoming aware of who you are. And once you get connected to that, it takes you straight to where you came from. And then beliefs become different. So anyway, thanks for uh, sharing your time with us. I really deeply appreciate it. I feel honored to be able to share a little time with you. And uh, remember, we started that Saturday show too, right? And that's called the Planetary Healing Club. It's a special group for people that actually want to take some of these ideas and start working on their own personal situation, their own life, their life and health issues that they're dealing with and start to change their experience instead of just saying, oh, yeah, that's interesting. Uh, that's a good theory. And maybe it's true. I don't know. I'm going right back to what I've always done. You don't have to be uh, complacent like that. You can change everything. And it starts with changing your own life. And a good place to do to start on that, what I found, is um, stop judging everybody else, you know, or condemning them, but start working on yourself and start analyzing what you're doing every day, not just your actions, but your thoughts and your emotions. What are the programs running in your mind? Is that what you want to be there? Because that's going to influence everything you do. And those are all completely changeable 
to any extent. And if you do it in a positive direction and combine it with learning natural laws of getting your health back and your energy to a very high level, you won't have the same experience of aging, degenerative diseases, um, susceptibility to infectious diseases, all that totally changes. And there's real ways to do that. And once you do that for yourself, that makes a foundation that you can start your real work if you're brave enough. And that's working areas of consciousness that are very powerful. And you're the one that everybody's been waiting for because your influence on the rest of the world, if you do this in yourself, is a lot. So if you want to change from just watching your life go by and start working on some of this stuff, check out what we're doing on Saturdays and let other people know who might benefit from it. You can see it and get access at Lost L-O-S-T, arts, plural, A-R-T-S, radio, dot com, forward slash, club, C-L-U-B. And if you're interested, you've decided something that might be good, then I'll meet you there next Saturday. Have a great week. Thanks for being here with us, and I'll see you next time. Introducing Lost Arts Radio Live, our new Saturday late afternoon, early evening, one-hour live stream show. This new show precedes our Planetary Healing Club, which starts at 9 p.m. Eastern and 6 p.m. Pacific. The Planetary Healing Club, which is not free and open to the public, but you can join for a minimum donation of just $10 a month. Our new live stream show, which is free, starts Saturdays at 7.30 p.m. Eastern and 4.30 Pacific. It can be accessed by going to lostartsradio.com live. You can tune into our live stream from our Facebook page, at facebook.com slash lostartsradio, from our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash lostartsradio, as well as both Periscope and Twitter at lostartsradio. You can ask questions during the show by using the chat function on YouTube or make a comment on Facebook during the live stream. Once again, that's Lost Arts Radio Live, Saturdays at 7.30 Eastern, 4.30 Pacific. As of January 2018, The Saturday live call-in show is now an interactive video platform called the Planetary Healing Club. The cost is just a $10 minimum monthly donation automatically billed through your PayPal account. Sign up at lostartsradio.com slash club. The Planetary Healing Club is every Saturday night at 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific. You get your link to participate in the show upon signing up as a member. Those shows are also archived as well for club members. Listen to our new shows with guests every Sunday night at 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific. All Sunday shows with guests have archives freely available on our website at lostartsradio.com. You can also find them at blogtalkradio.com forward slash lostartsradio, as well as our YouTube channel, youtube.com forward slash the letter C forward slash Lost Arts Radio. Mixcloud at mixcloud.com forward slash Lost Arts Radio. And finally, look us up under the podcast directory on iTunes. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Lost Arts Radio or on Twitter at Lost Arts Radio. Be sure to join the free Lost Arts Radio Facebook group as well. Just search for Lost Arts Radio group within Facebook. 
You can also join our forum on our website if you want to interact with other listeners. We also have links to all of the great independent musicians whose music we feature each week on Lost Arts Radio. When you do your Amazon shopping, please use Amazon Smile Program at smile.amazon.com. And when you choose Lost Arts Research Institute in Sedona, Arizona as your charity, Amazon will donate half a percent of whatever your order total is to Lost Arts Research Institute to help fund the building of the school and keep our radio show on the air. Please visit lostartsresearchinstitute.org for more information on the school we want to build. Be sure to sign up for our free weekly newsletter on our site under the radio show tab or right from the button on our Facebook page. Contact Richard at richard at lostartsradio.com or myself, Doug Diamond, at doug at lostartsradio.com. Thanks again for listening to Lost Arts Radio, and we'll see you again next week.